The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. How are you doing this afternoon? Welcome, 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 welcome. Glad I could hop on here. I found the time to just hop on here and have an afternoon stream. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Got a lot of things to talk about. I'm sure you're anxious to hear what I have to say, and I'm anxious to hear what you have to say. And we're anxious to do this whole community thing that we do here on this stream very well. So I guess, uh, you know, we'll just uh, get ready to roll here. We will get ready to roll um, and we will have our our stream. Uh, that will be awesome. So I guess we'll start out with the opener uh, like we always do, right? I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just it's a byproduct of capitalism. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. All righty. Welcome, everybody. So glad that you're tuning in. Always a pleasure to talk with this community, engage with all of you. Uh, a lot of world events are happening a lot of disinformation and propaganda is out there from the U.S. imperialists. And I mean, you know, I, I feel good right now. I'll just be honest with you. As scary as world events are, we don't know how these things will develop. I'm not thrilled about, you know, the possible fallout. We all know we're worried about the danger of a new world war. But right now, I am in a good place. I'll just be honest with you. I am in a good place because it feels good. It feels good to see the forces of righteousness in the world score a few blows for once. I, I have my whole life seen the bad guys winning, okay? I know it sounds like it's a movie, and it's not a movie. This is people's lives, okay? So we need to be more realistic about these things. My whole life, I have seen Satan win. I have seen the forces of evil score victories, right? When I was in high school, uh, you know, the USA invaded Iraq invaded Iraq. And they said Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And they didn't. They said Iraq was responsible for 9-11, which was absolutely ridiculous. You know, Osama bin Laden was a wealthy Saudi uh, and he was a Wahhabi and Saddam Hussein was a Baathist Arab socialist. But all the people who buy into mainstream media, the same kind of people that now have Ukrainian flags on their pages, they all said, oh, yeah, Iraq's invading, invading Iraq is a, a terrorist country. And, and they went along with it and they supported it. And I didn't support it. And I questioned it. And I got called a terrorist and I got called a traitor and I got called, accused of disrespecting the country. And I got called to the principal's office and told that I was, you know, I shouldn't, shouldn't question the war because military families don't like hearing that. And, and, you know, my whole life I've seen this, right? And on top of that, we've seen it on the economic front, right? We have seen living standards go down. 
Uh, we've seen good paying jobs disappear. Uh, you go back to my hometown in Ohio right now, it, it's abysmal, right? When I was a kid in the 90s, it was, you know, it, the economy was still good. I mean, it wasn't the richest part of the United States. It's a little tiny town, manufacturing town, but it was much better than it is now. And I hear about, you know, kids in my high school class who died of opioids, and I hear about uh, all the evil things that are happening and, and just, you know, the lack of economic opportunity, how the labor movement and the unions are on defensive. And I've just seen the forces of, of evil. I've seen the forces of evil have so many victories, right? I've seen them have so many victories. When Barack Obama got in there and he manipulated the Arab Spring and he took the most prosperous country in Africa, Libya, and he bombed it to shreds and destroyed it. And now, it's so miserable. People are drowning in the Mediterranean, trying to get out. Syria, a stronghold of anti-imperialism that was aiding the Palestinian people that had you know, built infrastructure and had the Communist Party and the government, trade unions in the factories reduced to chaos. And I have just seen so much evil, so much evil uh, in my life. I've seen the forces of evil have so many victories, right? Um, you know, I mean, I've seen them transform the, the movement of socialism that I, I gave my life to. And then I studied the ideology of William Z. Foster and Gus Hall. I've seen them hijacked into this twisted identity politics cult, uh, you know, and that the communism, the name of communism has been tarnished by this disgusting synthetic leftism. You know, so much evil has happened. So much evil in my life has happened. I've seen so many, many victories for, for evil. Uh, you know, so many victories for evil, you know, um, and now I'm sitting back and I'm watching, despite how scary it is, uh, despite how much of a tense situation it is, I am watching the forces of good in the world kick ass and I am happy about it. God damn it. I am going to celebrate the fact that the people of Donetsk and the people of Luhansk have been heard. Folks, I tweeted out pictures. People don't believe me. I've been getting all of this. All the troll farms are unloading on me right now. You work for Russia. You work for Putin. You're only saying that because you get paid. Well, I've been tweeting out pictures. In 2014, 2014, I didn't work for Russia. I didn't work for RT. I didn't. I, I, I was an, an independent journalist at that point. And in 2014, when all of this began with Euromaiden, you can see a photograph, multiple photographs of me in the street with signs that say support red youth in Ukraine. And I was standing with the people of Donbass. I was standing with the people of Donetsk and Luhansk. You can look at my Facebook posts. You can look at the protests I was engaged in. I was in the streets standing with the people of Donetsk. The Donetsk People's Republic was declared in 2014. The Lugansk People's Republic was declared in 2014. And that is when I, I started supporting them. I didn't start supporting them when I started working at RT. I was supporting them long before that. People will remember during Occupy Wall Street how I was supporting Libya and I was supporting Syria. I have always been an anti-imperialist. I have always known that when the greatest mass murderers in the world, the U.S. imperialists, the people who murdered millions of people in Vietnam, the people who murdered millions of people in Korea, the people who backed Pinochet's ugly coup in Chile, I have always known that when they point their guns at a country, it is my duty as an anti-imperialist, as a working class person to stand with them. And I've always known that the working families of the United States have the same enemy as the Russians, as the Iranians, as the Cubans, as the Venezuelans, as the Chinese. That's always been my orientation. I didn't get that from RT. 
I didn't get that from Putin. I didn't get that from Russia. I, I got that from William Z. Foster. I got that from Sam Marcy. I got that from Gus Hall. I got that from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said the American government was the greatest perpetrator of violence on earth. I got that from Malcolm X. Uh, that's where I got it from. I didn't get it from Putin. So don't, you know, this idea that I'm just doing this because I work for RT, that's ridiculous. But I'll tell you this much. I'll tell you this much. Uh, you look at those photos back in 2014, very few people in the world were standing with Luhansk, Lugansk, and Donetsk. Very few people. Very few people. It wasn't a popular cause. And Russia had to wait. You know, Russia, Russia is a big country that trades with a lot of different countries. And, you know, when uh, when when the People's Republics declared themselves, I wanted Russia to go in and protect them. I wanted Russia to immediately recognize them. I was so happy to see communists back in power for once. So happy to see that. I was so happy to see people's republics created. I was so happy to see them building statues of Lenin for once, not tearing them down. I was so happy. And I wanted Russia to go in and protect these people immediately. Russia couldn't do that. Russia couldn't do that, right? And Russia waited. And the Minsk agreement was signed. And the idea was the Donetsk People's Republic and the Gans People's Republic, they would gradually, you know, be assimilated back into the Ukrainian government. Well, it didn't happen. The, you know, the agreement was signed in uh, 2015, and it's been seven years that Russia has waited for the Minsk agreement to be signed. It's been seven years the people of Lugansk and Donetsk have been waiting for that Minsk agreement to be signed and, and carried out, and it hasn't been, and that they haven't fulfilled it. And at this point, at this point, Russia has said, you know what, you know what, we, we have waited, we have waited, we have waited, and now the government that is on the, uh, you know, is on our border, the, the Kiev regime. The Kiev regime is threatening to join NATO. The Kiev regime is threatening to get nuclear weapons. The USA has piled so many lethal weapons in there. And the people of Donetsk and Luhansk have been bombarded for so long that uh, at this point, at this point, we're going to have to protect them. We are going to have to protect them. Folks, Let's be clear. This is not an invasion of Ukraine. All right. And we're going to get all technical here. OK. And I hate to be, you know, I'm going to sound like some kind of annoying lawyer here. This is not an invasion of Ukraine. If this was an invasion of Ukraine, Russia would be taking over Ukraine. They ain't doing that. Russia has sent their military to Donetsk and Luhansk, Lugansk, right, to protect the peoples of those republics. The, the Soviet, the Russian army has gone in and they are protecting the people of those republics who their government has asked them to do. So that's not an invasion, number one. And number two, Russia is taking strategic strikes against the Ukrainian military to make sure that the Ukrainian military no longer threatens these people. That's what they're doing. They're making sure that the Ukrainian military that's armed by the United States, that's got a special neo-Nazi battalion called the Azov Battalion, it is making sure that it can't threaten these people any longer and it's sending troops in the republics to protect them. And they want to get in and get out. This is not an invasion. They're not rolling tanks into Kiev. They're not, you know, you know, they're not setting up a, a puppet government in Kiev. That's not what's going on. Russia is simply protecting the lives of the people in Lugansk and Donetsk. This is a this is an anti-Nazi operation, a denazification operation. This is a an anti-terrorism operation. The people of Donbas, the people of Lugansk and Donetsk, have been subject to terrorism for the past eight years. 14,000 people have died in the ongoing shellings, 
and drone strikes and bombings and food blockade that has been carried out by the U.S.-aligned regime in Kiev. And Russia has waited, and they have waited, and they have waited, and they have waited, and they've put forward security guarantees. And they've gotten to the point where the USA has made it clear they're not going to respect the rights of the people of Donbass. They are not going to respect the rights of the people of Donetsk. They are not going to respect the rights of the people of Lugansk. They're not going to do it. And they're talking about joining NATO, and they're talking about getting nukes. Um, and so Russia is saying, nope, well, I guess we've given you your chance. Eight years is a long fucking time, people. It's not like Russia, you know, if Russia just rolled in in 2014, that would have been totally justified, right, to protect these people. They didn't do that. Eight years, eight years they waited to recognize these republics. Eight years they waited to send their military to protect them. Now they're doing it. And they, they're getting in there. They're taking out Ukrainian military stuff that'll be used against them. And they are, they are going to protect these republics. And, and I think they are absolutely right to do that. And if you are a legit anti-imperialist, uh, you would be with me. You'd be with me on this, right? That, uh, that what Russia is doing makes absolutely perfect sense. And I want to show you this picture. I wish I could print it out in color, but this is what we got. You know, it's on, this, it's on the thumbnail. This is the memorial that they have in Donbass to all the children who have been killed since this conflict began. Take a look at this. Take a look at this. This is a printout. This is the names and this is the faces. They got stuffed animals there. These are all the children who have died since this conflict began. You know, Joe Biden, he's, he said that, said that Russia is fighting a made-up threat. These children are not made up. They're not fake. They're not pretend children, okay? These are real children who have died here. These are real people in Lugansk and Donetsk. It's 4 million people, 4 million people. They're not fake. They're not fake. They're real. This is not a made up threat. The drone strikes, the shelling, the food blockade. This is not made up. This is not fiction. This is real. These are real people's lives. And if you, if you can't, if you're condemning Putin right now, if you're condemning Russia right now, you're saying that these lives don't matter. Russia's not going in there to start a war. Russia's going in there to end a war. That's what's going on. These people, for eight years, these people have been murdered. They've been slaughtered. They've been killed. 14,000 dead, killed by the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Donbass lives matter. Donbass lives matter. God damn it. Donbass lives matter. You know, if you can protest against the police, murdering an innocent African-American man in New York City. You can protest against the police murdering an innocent African man in Chicago or San Francisco. You can say that 4 million people in, in Eastern Ukraine, their lives matter. And Russia has waited for eight years, eight years to see if the promises of the Minsk agreement would be fulfilled and they haven't been fulfilled. And Russia is saying that the lives of these children and their families and their communities, they matter. Donbass lives matter. And if you're condemning Putin right now, you know, people say Putin's starting a war. No, the war started in 2014. Putin is ending a war. He is, he is knocking out the Ukrainian military so they'll never do what was done to these children again. These children were bombed. They were killed. They were shells, weapons that were given by our government killed these children. And Putin is going in and he's sending the military and the military is in Donetsk and Lugansk and they are taking out the Ukrainian military and they are making sure that what happened to these children never happens again. Russia is bringing peace 
to eastern Ukraine. That's what's going on. Russia is not creating a war. Russia is bringing peace to eastern Ukraine. And I applaud them for doing that. Donbass lives matter. The lives of the people of the Donbass region, the lives of the people of Donetsk and Lugansk, they matter. And Russia is absolutely right to protect them. They have waited a darn long time. Eight years is not a short amount of time. You know, you know, I remember in school, I got a lot of detentions. I got in trouble for having my homework late for one day. Now, you know, the, you know, and, and, and here we've got, you know, we've got the, the Ukrainian government, the Kiev government, their homework is late eight years and people have been dying the whole time. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Donbass lives matter. The lives of the people of Donetsk and Lugansk, they matter. And I am excited. I am happy to see a, a, a punch being landed by the forces of righteousness for once. I'm happy about it. I am celebrating the fact that the people of Donetsk and Luhansk are going to have peace now. The people of Donetsk and Luhansk are going to have protection now. They're going to be able to go to school without worrying that they're going to be hit by a drone. They're going to be able to, to go and, and, and walk home from, from school without you know, worrying that they're going to be hit by a shell from the Kiev regime. Right. They are going to be able to have Russian food, you know, you know, you know, shipped in. They're going to get that blockade that's been imposed on them lifted. I am very, very happy that this is happening. And I'm glad that Putin is acting as a peacemaker, which is what he's doing. He is bringing peace to eastern Ukraine. We got a couple super chats. Thank you for your analysis. You're very, very welcome. You're very, very welcome for my analysis. But there's a few more I got to roll up because there's a lot more that I missed. So there's one more that I missed. Defund the oligarchy. Thank you for your super chat. Uh, there's another one that I got to write down. You know, you got to catch up with the super chats. I want anyone who gets a super chat to be able to, to answer it. Uh, was Ukraine working with the Nazis during World War II? All right. We'll write it down. Writing it down. Was Ukraine working with the Nazis during World War II? Um, was Ukraine working with the Nazis during World War II? Question mark. All right. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's what's going on. And I am, I'm very happy. I'm very, very happy to see that, that these people are going to get some protection. I'm worried about the war. I'm worried this could lead to World War III. I don't, don't, I'm not celebrating a war. I'm celebrating that a war will now be ended. I'm celebrating that these folks are going to get protection. Uh, why did the USSR invade Afghanistan in the 1980s? All right. Sorry. Afghanistan in the 80s. Writing it down. You know, I, I'm celebrating. I, I, I am I'm happy to see the forces of righteousness strike a blow against Satan for once. Right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about this. Um, you know, uh, I'm happy to see that, uh, that, that for once the voices of, of these people of the Donetsk, you know, and Lugansk people, for for once, their their cry is being heard and they are being recognized. Uh, and I I'm I'm happy to see that happening. I'm worried about a lot of things, folks. I mean, trust me, as somebody who works in Russian media, someone who's been to Crimea, uh, somebody who you know has been in the same room as Vladimir Putin on three and maybe four different occasions, I'm a little worried right now. My, you can bet my wife's worried. You can bet my family are worried about it. But I am trying to focus on the positive because I struggle and I strive in my all of my life to be optimistic, to be optimistic. And when there is a victory that is scored, U.S. ending INF treaty, when a victory is scored, 
we got to recognize it. We got to be happy about it. Um, did, did Yugoslavia collapse? All right. Writing it down. We got to be happy about it. Um, and so I, I just, I just wanted to talk about that. Now I, I want to get to another point, you know, and this may seem like elementary, but sometimes you just have to, you know, all of us are on different levels here, right? There are some people who are probably just hearing the arguments that I made right now about Ukraine and Russia's, you know, actions. There are probably people who are just hearing this for the first time, uh, you know, and then there are probably people who are going, no shit, Caleb. I've been watching RT all day long. Uh, oh, you're very welcome. You're very, very welcome. There's probably people watching this and saying, I've been watching RT all day long, Caleb. I know this. Like, can you get to something I don't know? You know, we're all on different levels and that's okay. A lot of us are in the United States. The United States is the capital of ignorance. Um, difference between empire and imperialist. All right. Empire and imperialist. Um, and, you know, all of us are on different levels, right? So we, we got to respect that. We got to respect that. Um and, you know, I'm going to say some things here that might seem elementary. Wow. Everyone's just rolling in with the super chats. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. And you'll get an answer to your question. Um, Russia kicked out of SWIFT. And um, we're all on different levels. And that's okay. We're okay. To, it's okay to be on different levels. You got to be patient with people. You can't snob over people. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Thank you very much, Michael, for your super chat. You can't snob over people. You got to recognize that not everyone's going to know about this and it gets frustrating. But I just want to say this. I just want to say this, that, um, that, that if you live in the United States of America, that's who I'm talking to right now. If you, this doesn't apply to you, if you're in, in Eastern Europe, this doesn't apply to you. If you're in Australia, this doesn't apply to you. If you're in Belgium, if you're living in the United States of America right now and you are Taking this opportunity, thank you, T-Mac, for the super chat. You're taking this opportunity to, to dump on Putin and dump on Russia. That is lower than dirt, in my opinion. Right? There is absolutely nothing heroic about doing that. Right? We are being bombarded with anti-Russian propaganda right now. We are just being bombarded with with hysterical, over-the-top allegations about Russia. And if you are, are making the conscious choice as a person to echo that, to repeat what's being said on CNN, to repeat what they're saying on Fox and MSNBC, that is morally reprehensible. It's morally reprehensible, right? I'm not saying that everything Russia is doing is right. War is hell. And, and there's a very good chance that, that Russia may commit some atrocities in the process of this war. Uh, and I'm not okay with any atrocities. I'm not okay with any crimes against humanity. I would never try to justify that. But you know what? Abraham, I'll tell you about, about a leader, an American leader who committed horrendous atrocities. His name was Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States. Will Azov continue to exist? Abraham Lincoln, you know, he was president of the United States and the slaveholders took up arms to try and overthrow the republic, try to break the South away from the country so they could maintain their slave system. And Lincoln led a war against the, the slaveholders. And during that war, a lot of atrocities were committed, right? The Union Army, they didn't play around. Sherman's march to the sea uh, was, was not pleasant. Right. And the conditions in the POW camps, the Confederate soldiers who got captured, they weren't treated very nice. Does that make 
the U.S. Civil War not justified? Of course not. I mean, of course not. Writing it down. Of course not. No one would look at the fact that Sherman's march to the sea, you know, and that there were horrendous atrocities committed by the Union Army in the Civil War and say, oh, well, I guess, you know, I guess that means the slaveholders were right. No one would say that. You know, no one would look at the bombing of Dresden, right? The horrendous allied bombing of Dresden, where a lot of civilians were killed. It was very wrong and say, oh, the Nazis must have been right in World War II. No one, uh, no one, no one would say that, right? That, you know, it's possible that in the course of all of this, Russia might do something wrong. That does not make the Ukrainian fascists and NATO correct. I mean, that's just not how it works, right? That, that sometimes in the process of war, bad things happen. But that doesn't mean, that does not make, uh, that does not make both sides equal. And that does not make uh, the, you know, one side automatically right just because the other side does something wrong. That's not how the world works. Turn the perfectly real painting back on. That's not how the world works. Um, you know, you know, uh, the world doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, and the, yeah, you know, not everything uh, through about the process of this is going to be good. There may be instances where it's, and it may, you know, there's going to be a lot of propaganda and fake news disseminated. There's already a lot of stuff that's very questionable on mainstream media. Now, because I owe it to you all to tell you only the truth, I'm waiting for investigations to be conducted. But there's a lot of reports. I'm not going to get into specifics here. There's a lot of reports of stuff that's been happening, been reported on CNN, that a lot of us who are familiar with war propaganda and a lot of us who are familiar with mainstream media and how they lied to get us into Iraq and how they lied on Libya, there's a lot of us who are looking at what's happening on our TV screens right now and we're going, hmm, that doesn't sound right. And I, if you're a conscious anti-imperialist and you've watched any mainstream American TV lately, you're, you're having the same thoughts. You're looking at your TV screen and you're going, wait a minute, hold up, really, really, you know, but we don't know yet. We're going to do an investigation. We're going to find out the facts. We are going to give you the facts. Once we know what's true, and what's not, we're going to tell you. But a lot of us are watching American television with a huge amount of suspicion right now, and rightly so. There's a lot of things on American TV right now that don't seem quite right. And I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to be suspicious because mainstream media lies, and it lies a lot. And in situations like this, it lies a huge amount, right? Okay. All right. Situations like this, mainstream media lies a lot. And we are going to find out. Look, when, you know, when the USA was, was trying to send troops to Kuwait and trying to persuade the public to support the USA sending troops to Kuwait, you had the infamous Naria testimony. Remember the Naria testimony where they had this girl on TV and she was crying, oh, they're taking babies and throwing them out of incubators. And that all turned out to be fake. That all turned out to be fake news. It wasn't true, right? It was staged. The woman was a member of the Kuwaiti royal family. She wasn't even under oath. The whole thing was staged. But, you know, and a lot of people that were watching it happen on CNN, a lot of anti-imperialists and communists watched it and they went, huh, what? They went, that doesn't sound right. But they didn't, they had to wait. And then later we found out it was, was staged. Um, you know, thank you, Gabby. Yes, we got to get the truth out there. We got to get the truth out there. Um, you know. 
we got to get the truth out there. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, there, there's there's a lot of things that are looking like fake news to me. We don't know for sure that they're fake news. So we got to wait. We got to got to wait. And there might be some things that are true that that, that make Russia look bad. And that's that's, you know, um, Russia's current actions in Vietnam deploying troops against Pol Pot's Cambodia. Hmm, OK, that's an interesting one. Similarities. Russia's actions in Vietnam. Pot. A lot of super chats coming in. Why did Saddam Hussein invade Kuwait in 1990? Um, but there you go. Um, and so we got to keep that in mind. That there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are coming out that we have questions about. But one thing I just I have to comment on is that press conference that just happened with Joe Biden. All right. Now, I mean, I'm speaking to people who aren't anti-imperialists, people who don't even agree with me on Russia or anything. If you're just a just a plain American citizen, you had to watch that press conference that happened earlier today and go, what the what and the whaty what? I mean, that press conference that just happened today was an embarrassment. It was an embarrassment to the country. All right. So Joe Biden came out there. And he's, you know, he gave his speech. All of the whole situation is Russia's fault. It's all Russia's fault. Putin did this. And he's going to put sanctions on Russia. And he's going to sanction the biggest Russian bank. And he's going to hurt the Russian economy. And, oh, he's not going to stand for this. And, and then the Q&A started. Oh, my God. They should not let Biden take Q&A ever again. If I was on Biden's staff, I would say, Biden, no more questions. Just never take any more questions. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Uh, wow. Um, one moment that stood out is that, you know, I mean, and first of all, the press are despicable. They are like pro-war lobby, basically. They're like, well, you know, is sanctions enough? It doesn't seem to be enough to stop Putin. We need more sanctions. You know, they're demanding more about sanctions. One, so this one reporter, you know, I think it was the reporter from the Wall Street Journal says, well, what about the SWIFT international banking system? Are you going to kick Russia out of the SWIFT international banking system? You know, is that in the, in the sanctions? And Biden's like, well, you know, we want to, but our European ally, <laughs> oops. Yeah, turns out Europe basically told the United States they can't kick Russia out of the SWIFT international banking system. Yeah, the Germans, the French, Norwegians, Belgians, Italians, they said to the United States, yeah, we're not going to let you crash the international economy by kicking Russia out of the SWIFT system. The United States was threatening to kick Russia out of the SWIFT international banking system, which would prevent them from engaging in any international banking transactions. And it sounds like Europe basically told the United States, no, you can't do that. You want to talk about a moment of weakness for the United States. They should never have threatened this if they had no capability of following through on it, because that was the bluster, right? You know, throughout this whole Ukraine extravaganza, the United States has been saying, we are going to kick Russia out of the international banking system. We are going to kick Russia out of the SWIFT system. We're going to do it. Man, one step into Ukraine, Mr. Putin, and we are going to kick you out of the international banking system. We are going to kick you out of the SWIFT. And then Biden's like, well, you know, we, we can't do that. Yeah. You want to talk about a moment where the United States has egg on its face, a moment where the United States is looking uh, very embarrassed. 
the USA has been leveling this swift international banking threat nonstop for months. And now we just found out Europe won't let them do it. Yeah, the Europeans basically told the Americans, yeah, we're not going to let you kick Russia out of the SWIFT banking system. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be an embarrassing moment. Biden uh, was a little bit uncomfortable when he answered that question. Well, our European allies, uh, and then he tried to, this is my favorite. He says, well, the sanctions we are imposing on Russia, they're worse than SWIFT. Yeah, that was interesting. They said that the sanctions they're putting on Russia are worse than SWIFT are worse than SWIFT. And I thought, really? And he's like, yeah, we're going to sanction the biggest bank in Russia. We are going to sanction, you know, the family members of, of Russian Russian oligarchs. And, and it's like, wait a second. You do realize that you're putting sanctions on the biggest bank in Russia. If you kick them out of the SWIFT system, you would be kicking them out of every bank in Russia. You would be sanctioning every single bank in Russia. That would mean there would be no Russian bank transactions, right? So there's no way that sanctioning one bank or another bank is worse than SWIFT. Biden, it looks like you just, you just uh, revealed how weak the United States really is. Europe basically said, okay, yeah, we don't like Putin. Okay, you can put some more sanctions, but no, we're not going to kick Russia out of the international banking system. That was, that was something amazing. Another thing that, that blew my mind, blew my mind. So, and this... I, this is an impeachable offense, okay? I, he should be immediately impeached. This should scare the crap out of every American, okay? I mean, I, I just, I don't understand how, like, I mean, look, every Republican, every mainstream Democrat, everyone, anyone who's, like, got any, like, rational sense should see this. This was a let's go Brandon moment if there ever was one, and it was, it's utterly terrifying, uh, this part of the press conference. I don't know if you saw it, but, uh, you know, the reporter asks Joe Biden, is Putin threatening a nuclear strike? That was the question. Is Putin threatening a nuclear strike? And Joe Biden replies, I don't know what he's threatening. Folks, the president of the United States does not know if we are in danger of nuclear war or not. Folks, it is Joe Biden's job to know what Russia is threatening. And if Russia is threatening to nuke the United States or some other country, I cannot think of something that would be more in Joe Biden's job description for him to know. But Joe Biden said, I don't know what he's threatening. Russia is not threatening to nuke the United States. He's not. I mean, that just didn't happen. But there's been some Twitter rumors and stuff. Reporter asked Joe Biden, and if Joe Biden was a competent leader, he would have immediately answered it with, no, no, he's not threatening a nuclear strike. But Joe Biden said, I don't know what he is threatening. Meaning the people in charge, I mean, didn't tell me whether he's doing that or not. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, forget the anti-imperialism, forget the Marxism. I mean, even if you're on the American side, how can Joe Biden, the president of the United States, not know if a nuclear strike is being threatened at this moment? And I saw your question, Kinky, about, about RT. I'm writing it down. Right? 
Uh, how, how in the world, you know, uh, how in the world can he not know that? He knows. I mean, look, there's either one or two things happening. Number one is Joe, and I think it's, it's likely the first one, is that Joe Biden is just so out of it and so clueless that he was afraid that he would say, no, he's not, and he was, and he would look stupid. So he said, I don't know. Joe Biden is so out of touch with what's going on. He's so senile. He lives in such a bubble. I mean, the guy doesn't know what let's go Brandon means. So, okay. That, that he just, he's just like, I don't know. And if he's being honest and he doesn't know, that's terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying that the president of the United States doesn't know if nuclear war is on the table or not. So that's probably what's going on. But second of all, it could be that he doesn't want to he doesn't want to undemonize Putin. It could be that Joe Biden is just a liar, right? And he doesn't want to cancel that lie. That lie was going around social media. Putin's going to nuke his threatening to nuke countries, blah 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 blah. And that um you know, and that um that Joe Biden basically didn't want to undo deceptive anti-Russian propaganda. And that is absolutely evil, because if, if you're accusing Russia of threatening to nuke countries, then pretty soon that leads to maybe the USA should have a preemptive strike. And then that leads to Russia saying, oh, wow, the United States is planning a preemptive strike. Maybe we should have a strike. And then that leads to the United States saying, oh, wow, Russia is planning a strike. Maybe we should have a strike. And that leads to a situation where somebody pushes the button and the human race ends. Nuclear war is not a joke, people. And we have a president, a president who doesn't, he's not able to say, no, nuclear war is not on the table. Now, if this is, you want to talk about something that is utterly terrifying. Joe Biden can't say, he can't, he doesn't have the courage. He doesn't have the courage or he doesn't have the intelligence. He just doesn't know to get up there and say, no, Putin's not threatening to nuke us. Now, if you want to talk about how dangerous and incompetent this is, you know, people used to talk about, you know, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was testing a microphone and he's like, I've just passed legislation making Russia illegal. Bombing begins in five minutes. <laughs> you know, he got caught joking about nuclear war. Right. And that was, you know, Ronald Reagan. That was a classic moment. But now we have a situation where Biden's not joking. He ain't joking. But they asked him straight up, is Putin threatening a nuclear strike? And Joe Biden said, I don't know. He either said it because he's completely out to lunch and should be immediately removed from office, impeached for that, or two, because he's playing a game of trigger that is really, really, really dangerous. And he should be impeached for that too. But that moment where Joe Biden said, I don't know if Putin is threatening nuclear strike. At that moment, at that moment, Joe Biden should have been removed from office immediately. That is an impeachable offense. He should be removed for incompetence if he was being honest, and he should be removed for endangering the lives of the human race if he was not, if he was lying. Russia is not threatening a nuclear strike. And the fact that that can't be unequivocally said 
you know, if there's one thing we should all be really clear about in a situation where two great powers are on the verge of facing off Russia and the United States, if there's one thing that we should all be really clear about and really careful about how we talk about, it should be nuclear weapons. If there's anything that one should be really careful about talking about in a situation like this, it would be nuclear weapons. And the fact that there's not clarity on that issue in the White House is utterly terrifying. It's absolutely utterly terrifying. And, and I, I don't know, I mean, how can this man stay in office? How can this man stay in office if he doesn't know? I mean, he doesn't know whether nuclear war is on the table. Now, you know, I mean, and I, I feel like everyone should agree with me. Conservatives should agree with me. Libertarians should agree with me. De mainstream Democrats should agree with me. Everyone in the world should agree with me about this. The fact that, that Joe Biden answered that question the way he did, that should be an impeachable offense. He needs to not be in office, right? And, and you know, I mean, that might not be the popular thing to say. There's people say, oh, you're working for the Republicans. Look, I, I'm just being serious. Donald Trump, as bad as Trump was, Trump would know whether or not Putin threatened to nuke us, right? As bad as Obama was. Barack Obama would know whether or not Putin was threatening to nuke us. I mean, I don't even know. Maybe Kamala Harris might even know. I don't know. Kamala Harris seems even more dangerous than Joe Biden in some ways. I mean, I think Joe Biden's just an old man who's tired and wants to be president. But Kamala Harris, she's got that whole thing. I wrote my book about Kamala Harris. Go read my book on Kamala Harris. Um, but uh, yeah, utterly terrifying. The media said that Kremlin has compromat or compromising material on Trump. Okay. All right. So there we go. But I want to get to another point, which is that, you know, if you live in the United States and you are taking this opportunity to speak up against Russia, you're a punk. All right. There's nothing heroic about doing that. There's nothing brave about doing that. That would be the equivalent of, uh, you know, if you lived in Nazi Germany, you know, during the, the, the 19, late 1930s, 1939, and you had a protest against, against, you know, the Sudetenland, right? That would be the equivalent of if you were living in Imperial Japan and you had a protest against Manchuria and, you know, how China was disrespecting Japan. You know, that would be the equivalent of during the Vietnam War, you had a protest against Ho Chi Minh, right? Being anti-Putin at this point is like, first of all, there's nothing bold or original or heroic about it. Anybody can be against Putin in the United States. The whole mainstream media is singing an anti-Putin chorus right now. So if you think you're bold, if you think you're heroic, you think you're original, you think you're, you are ridiculous. It is the, it is the biggest display of conformity I've ever seen, number one. And number two, it is not moral. It is not moral because by demonizing Putin, what you're saying is that these people's lives don't matter and that they shouldn't be protected. That's what you're saying. If you're demonizing Putin right now, you're basically saying that the lives of the people in Donbass, over 14,000 of which have already died, they've been dying for eight years. They've waited for seven years for the Minsk agreement to be signed. Putin is trying to secure their protection. He's trying to weaken the Ukrainian military and make sure these people get some goddamn peace. You're saying that, uh, that these people don't have a right to life. That's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. 
And, um, you know, and, and it's, it's morally reprehensible. And I, I really, I, I really, anyone who's getting up and, you know, you know, whatever they think about Russia, whatever they think about Putin, anyone who's getting up right now and using this opportunity to make everyone know, I condemn Putin, shame on you, shame on you. That is reprehensible. It is reprehensible behavior. Um, you know, and, and if you have any moral fiber at all, you should be explaining to the world why Russia feels they have to do this, even if you don't agree with it, right? Even if you don't agree, you might disagree. You might say, Caleb, I don't buy it. You know, I, I don't think this is the right thing for Russia to do. I disagree with you. Fine. But you should be explaining to your friends, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your family members, why Russia is doing this. That's what you should be doing. If you have any moral fiber, you should be explaining why millions of people in Russia are rallying behind Putin and supporting this action right now. Right. And, and can we go over again? Because there's all these people saying, oh, Caleb, you said Russia wasn't going to invade Ukraine. You're wrong. You lied. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, Russia is not invading Ukraine. Russia is not invading Ukraine. Let me repeat this for the thousandth time. Russia is not invading Ukraine. Russia is granting recognition to the republics of Donetsk and Lugansk and supplying them with military support. And those are separate countries. They're not invading Ukraine. They're sending military aid to aligned countries, number one. And on top of that, Russia is engaging in anti-terror strikes. They are, they are weakening the Ukrainian military in order to protect the people of Lugansk and Donetsk. And that is completely justified. Right. That's not an invasion. An invasion. If Russia marched over the border and like planted a Russian flag in Kiev, that would be an invasion. That's not what's happening. That Russia is not, you know, they're not marching over the border and planting a flag in Kiev. That's not what they're doing. They are protecting independent countries that asked for their help. Number one. Number two, they are apparently striking the Ukrainian military in order to make sure the Ukrainian military does not menace the peoples of Donbass any longer. At no point has is, Russia is not invading Ukraine. This is not an invasion of Ukraine, right? There are, there are definitely military operations going on against the Ukrainian military, and I'm not denying that. And I'm not denying that they have sent their military into Lugansk, and they may have sent their military strategically into other parts of Ukraine to weaken the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian Air Force, and the, you know, and that. But they're not trying to occupy Ukraine. They've made it clear. This is a this is a, a military operation. This is a strategic operation, and that is what they are doing. And we'll learn the details of it later, right? I don't know. See, here's the thing that annoys me. I mean, and it should annoy you. Um, okay. Do you remember a week ago when bombs went off in Lugansk and bombs went off in Donetsk? U.S. media immediately said, oh, it's a false flag. This is fake. Like shelling was going on and, and bombs were falling and all these people in eastern Ukraine and Donetsk and Lugansk, all these people were piling onto buses and fleeing to Russia. You remember that? Now, all these people were fleeing to Russia to get out and bombs were going off and shells were flying. And the USA immediately said, oh, it's not real. It's fake. This is all fake. False flag. This isn't real. Like immediately, Right. I mean, big explosions are happening in eastern Ukraine and in the People's Republics. And U.S. media immediately after, with no investigation, no details, just immediately declares, oh, uh, it's not, not real. But then, right now in Ukraine, all kinds of stuff is happening. Explosions are happening, and there's something at the airport, and, 
And immediately the U.S. media is saying, oh, Russia's doing this and Russia's here and Russia's. They're not investigating any of this. We don't know what's going on. Is there fighting happening across Ukraine? Are there explosions happening? Yes. Is the Russian military moving against the Ukrainian military? Yes. But, but do they know that every single one of these reports they're getting is Russia? Do they know that every, no. And I mean, and that's pretty unbelievable, right? I mean, I mean, look, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not fair. It's not balanced. This is not fair and balanced coverage. You know, the explosions went off in Donetsk and they immediately, without any investigation, declared, oh, no, you know, this is this is that. And and stuff is happening in Ukraine. And every report from the Ukrainian military is just immediately being put on TV. And a lot of it, a lot of the reports that we're hearing sound sketch. Right. We don't know. We're going to investigate first. But a lot of what we're hearing from American mainstream media sounds sketch, sounds totally sketch. Sadly, in the West, many people don't need a reason to hate Russia or Putin because you have to convince someone who's watching TV. How would you convince someone who's been watching BBC for 20 years? How would you convince who's been watching BBC for 20 years? But but folks, what's really happening, and this is what you really need to remember, is the fact that Joe Biden came out there and he said he's not sending the U.S. military into Ukraine. The fact that Joe Biden came out there and has admitted that he can't kick Russia out of the SWIFT international banking system. This is a sign that we are entering a brave new world. The world that you and I want is coming into being. Folks, after the fall of the Soviet Union, they told us communism was dead. The USA was the sole superpower. It was the end of history. Neoliberal economics was unleashed on Russia. It took millions of lives. Roughly 6.6 million people either died or fled the country as a result of the shock therapy economics that was imposed on the country. Latin America, around the same time, was also devastated. Thank you, Christian. Thank you very, very much. Latin America was also devastated. In Latin America, they, you know, they, they started imposing neoliberalism, shock therapy, destroyed, destroyed Bolivia, privatizations, Venezuela, cutbacks. You know, I was 12 years old in 1999. I went to Ecuador in the middle of a humanitarian crisis spawned by neoliberalism and saw it with my own eyes. I was shocked. I was a 12 year old kid. I'm like, what in the world's going on here? And Cuba was just devastated in the nineties, right? I mean, they only had electricity for a few hours every day. They, they had food shortages and North Korea, North Korea in the 1990s, they were also devastated. They had the arduous March and millions of people died of malnutrition as the USA, you know, blocked them from importing petroleum and, and stopped their food system and, and the USA, you know, uh, majority of, uh, and the USA, um, the USA was, was, you know, just, just going around the world. They imposed these murderous sanctions on Iraq and killed people in Iraq and with sanctions, you know, hundred, uh, you know, 1.2 million people were killed. 500,000 children were killed when Iraq suffered under these horrendous sanctions. And, and I mean, 
uh, it, it was believed that U.S. imperialism was going to run the world forever. And it was believed that socialism and communism and Marxism were defeated forever. Um, and it was believed uh, that neoliberal capitalism would always reign, uh, that this was the end of history. And that's not what happened. Right? In 1999, Russia got a president named Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin, a former security services officer, went in there and he put oil and gas under state control. And he started using the oil and the gas to resubsidize the economy, and get Russia back in business. And by 2006, Russia was back in business. All that had been done in the 90s, the, you know, the devastation, 2006, Russia's industrial output was back to what it was before. And in 1998, in Venezuela, they had an election. And Comandante Hugo Chavez, former paratrooper, got elected. He said he didn't believe in capitalism or socialism, just believed in what was best for Venezuela. He got in there and he used the military to help the people to stop mudslides. And he, uh, you know, he, he ratified a new constitution. And then the USA tried to overthrow him in 2002. And he beat back an attempted coup against him. And he started moving Venezuela towards socialism, said that Venezuela was becoming a socialist country. And then in Bolivia, Evo Morales got elected. And the first country he went to after he got elected was China. And he said, Evo Morales, the new elected president of Bolivia, said he respected Mao's proletarian revolution. And, and the Sandinistas got back into office in Nicaragua and they got elected and they started moving Nicaragua back towards socialism, bringing in citizens power councils and empowering people. The world started changing. And then Israel, Israel decided they were going to attack Lebanon and Hezbollah kicked Israel's ass in 2006. They went into Lebanon and Hezbollah kicked Israel's ass and the whole Muslim world, all the Muslims of the world that stand with the Palestinians were cheering for Hezbollah and cheering for the country that backs Hezbollah, Iran. And, and Iran and Hezbollah were the heroes of the whole Muslim world. And the world was starting to change. The world was starting to change. And Barack Obama came in and he did the Arab Spring and he destabilized Syria and he toppled Libya and brought down socialism in Libya and tried to hijack some of the progressive sentiments around the world and use them for imperialism. And a lot of things have been changing. But China... China has had a lot of changes. I don't believe Putin was backed into a corner. But protecting. All right, very good. Uh, but the world started changing and China started changing. You know, China, they just want to raise their people out of poverty. You know, uh, you know, uh, they just want to raise China up and make China a better country. Do um, you think Zelensky is going to flee Ukraine, fight Russia or Putin's demand? Oh, that's a good question. Writing it down. And shout out to you, Jackson. You're doing great, great work. Bill Zelensky. Fight. And we're, you know, in China, in China, they just want to raise their people out of poverty. And they thought the Americans were their friends. Some of them thought that the Americans were their friends. Jiang Zemin said that eventually China sought to adopt the Western system. But then 
China started to realize the USA wasn't really their friend. And a lot of people in China noticed this free market stuff they were doing in the free market zones was getting out of control. And that a lot of the problems of the market were flowing into China. And then now you've got the rise of Xi Jinping, who Fidel Castro said is one of the most revolutionary Marxists he's ever met. China is moving back in a socialist, Marxist, anti-imperialist direction. They got Mao's picture everywhere. They're studying the Little Red Book. Uh, They are promoting Xi Jinping's thoughts on building a socialist society. Bolivarian socialism is rising in Latin America. Uh, The Shia Muslim anti-imperialist current is rising in the Middle East with Hezbollah and with Iran and with the Syrian people who've been, you know, fighting, you know, the Syrian Ba'ath socialists, Islamic socialists and Ba'athist Arab socialists in Syria fighting U.S. imperialism. And, you know, and in and in eastern Ukraine, we now have two new countries uh, that have been recognized finally by Russia by Venezuela, by Nicaragua, uh, by by Iran, by the Houthis, uh, you know, I mean, they've all recognized the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic. We have two new countries that are led by communists that are recognized by Russia, by Nicaragua, by Venezuela, uh, by Iran, uh, this and by Belarus. I mean, this is the, the world is changing. We are moving closer towards the world that you and I fight for, the world that you and I want. Right. We're winning, guys. The fact that this is happening, that Russia is finally stepping in to protect the peoples of eastern Ukraine and the fact that all the United States can't really do anything about it. The United States can, you know, can beat its chest and try to, you know, sanction Russian banks. The United States can't kick Russia out of the SWIFT system. The United States can't send troops to Ukraine. It looks to me like this is a sign U.S. imperialism is getting weaker and the world that you and I want. A world where human growth and progress is no longer restrained by the irrationality of the market. A world where human life comes before profits. A world where human creativity and development is no longer restrained by the irrationality of the market. That world is getting closer. I mean, if you look at what China has done, raising hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. If you look at, you know, at what Putin has achieved by reasserting state control over oil and gas and rebooting Russia's economy. If you look at what Venezuela and Bolivia and, uh, and Nicaragua have achieved in raising people up out of poverty and building strong economies where the people come first, not the profits of a few. You look at how the Cuban people have held out. You look at how the, the people of, of Yemen have resisted, the Houthis in Yemen, they've resisted an all-out imperialist attack. The fourth largest military budget in the world is coming down on them and they're fighting and they're continuing to fight. If you look at what's going on right now, it's very clear that we're winning. We are winning, guys. We're winning. We are winning. We are winning. And I love to follow this international stuff. You guys know, and that's probably why a lot of you are watching for the international stuff. We're winning. The city building tendency is winning. Whether it's Ba'ath socialists, Shia Muslims in the Middle East, Chinese communists, Bolivarian socialists in Latin America, you know, the communists in Donetsk and and Lugansk, uh, you know, I mean, we're winning, guys. We're winning. But we, by we, I mean those of us who live in the United States, 
we have a special responsibility. Because right now, imperialism isn't just murdering people in Yemen. It hasn't just been bombarding the people in eastern Ukraine. It hasn't been just destroying the lives of people in Latin America. It's not just in Haiti where the people are in the streets right now against the free market neoliberal regime or Puerto Rico, but right here in the center of the empire. American workers are becoming victims of imperialism. The reason that they are unpaving the roads in 27 different states right now is because of imperialism. And the reason that the next generation of American workers are facing a lifetime of low-wage, short-term service sector jobs is because of imperialism. And the reason people are dying from opioids the reason doctors were pushed to overprescribe opioids is because of U.S. imperialism. And the reason that the United States has the biggest prison population of any country in the world and prisons have been turned into a way to make profits. And we've got a prison industrial complex, mass incarceration, police brutality that's been rained down on the black community. That is because of U.S. imperialism. And the reason that there are immigrant being locked in cages on our border and dead bodies turn up along the Mexican-American border every day, that's because of U.S. imperialism. And the reason that our civil liberties are being stripped away and the government is tapping our phones and reading our emails and they're having no-knock raids and kicking down doors and police are murdering people on the streets and getting away with it, that is because of U.S. imperialism. And the reason the reason so many young people are hopeless right now and feel like their life doesn't have a future, that is because of U.S. imperialism. And the reason, the reason that life is becoming bleak and the reason so many people don't even know who they are anymore, don't even know what anything is worth living for, that is because of U.S. imperialism. And the most patriotic thing that one can do, the most patriotic America-loving, pro-American thing you can do is take a stand against U.S. imperialism. U.S. imperialism is destroying America. U.S. imperialism is destroying the lives of working families right now. And just like the people of Donetsk and Lugansk are rising against U.S. imperialism, just like the people of Latin America are rising against U.S. imperialism, just like the people of the, the Middle East, the Palestinians, the, the Lebanese, the Iranians are rising against U.S. imperialism. It is time for the working families of America, the working people of this country who have been screwed over by Wall Street, it is time for them to rise against U.S. imperialism. The same big banks and multinational corporations that are impoverishing the United States of America are the enemy of the people of the world. And what we need more than anything right now is not just, you know, a guy who can get on YouTube and wax and wane about international events. What we need right now is for the city building tendency, the global anti-imperialist current to set up shop right here in the United States of America. We need the global anti-imperialist current to have a headquarters in America. And that is what the Center for Political Innovation is. That is what it is. That is what CPIUSA.org, the Center for Political Innovation is. We are the American incarnation of the city building tendency. That's what we are. And we are the greatest patriots in the world. If Abraham Lincoln were alive today, he would be a member of the city building tendency. 
he would be part of the Center for Political Innovation. If John Brown, the great heroic abolitionist, were alive today, he would join the Center for Political Innovation. If Gus Hall were alive today, he would look at Joe Sims and, and the, the jokesters that have taken over his party, and he would, he would quit and he would join the city building tendency. If William Z. Foster was alive today, if Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was alive today, they would join the city building tendency. They joined the Center for Political Innovation. That's us. Anti-imperialism is us. Socialism is us. We represent the future of America because the new world is coming. The new world beyond profits and markets, the new world where human reason controls the means of production and the anarchy and chaos of the market is abolished, that new world is coming. And it's already there here in China. It's already here in Russia. It's already here in parts of Latin America. It's already here in parts of the Middle East. And it's coming. And it's coming. And if we in America don't join it, it's going to destroy us. It's going to destroy us. Because it's coming one way or another. And if we don't get on board, then that train is going to run us over. That's the reality of the situation. If we don't get on board, that train is going to run us over. I want America to be part of the new world that emerges. I want America and the United States to be reborn on new values of brotherhood and sisterhood, kindness, compassion. I want a new America where black people don't face racial discrimination any longer. I want a new America where there's no more anti-immigrant bigotry. I want a new America where transgender kids can be proud of who they are and don't have to feel ashamed of who they are, don't get bullied, don't get harassed. I want a new America where no one has to be hungry, where no one has to be unemployed, where the potential and talent of all human beings is unleashed to make a stronger, healthier society. That's the kind of America that I want. And we got to build it because U.S. imperialism is going down. U.S. imperialism is going down. And the question is, what's going to replace it? Are we going to get a new America, a government of action that fights for working families? Or are we going to get Mad Max? Because that's really what's going to happen. U.S. imperialism is going down. That's the way the world's going. And it can go down Mad Max style, or it can go down our way. And that's the choice. Life so that when dying, you have a right to say, all my life, my strength is given to the finest cause, the fight for the liberation of humanity. Very good quote. That's really the choice we got. All right, is America going to go down Mad Max style, or is America going to be reborn on new values? Is it going to rise to the occasion? Is it going to become the city building tendency? Is it going to become a new country based on humane values, brotherhood, sisterhood, compassion, kindness? Is that, are we going to get the new America or are we going to get Mad Max? Because one way or another, it's only a matter of time. And we're seeing that today. U.S. imperialism is going down. U.S. imperialism is going down. Are we at the Center for Political Innovation? We want option number two. We want the United States to be reborn on new values. We want to rebuild this country. We want a government of action that fights for working families. We have a program to make it happen. And if you're interested, you should go join the Center for Political Innovation. Go to cpiusa.org and sign up and become a member. Come to our event. It's happening March 12th. We're having a great anti-imperialist event conference in Austin, Texas. We need you. We need you.
We need you. So there you go. Those are my opening remarks for tonight. Let's do the roll call. We'll call you out as I see you. Names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. Uh, names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. All right. We got Jenny Lynn. We got Steve Richter. Um, we got uh, Kinky. Uh, we got Nadia in East Harlem, NYC. Um, we got JT24 in Mississippi, Brooklyn, New York, Moppin Time, Bellingham, Washington, Cambridge, UK, Temple City, Kansas City, Dario from Brooklyn, Moe in Toronto, Canada, Stephen in Riverside City, uh, Alan from Utah, Piano Man, Mark in Aberdeen, Scotland, East Lansing, Michigan, Gabby Hernandez in Chicago, Palmer, Massachusetts, Patrick in Los Angeles, Andrew from Australia, Dayton, Ohio, Justin Darnell, Don D in NYC, Deborah Wilson in Mexico, Arturo from Alaska, Mosin from Iran, Stephanie from Florida, Kieran from San Diego, St. George, Utah, Joey in Lodi, California, Charlie in Glasgow, Scotland, British Columbia, St. George, Utah, Delaware, London, UK, Charlie in Glasgow, Scotland, Dave in Rochester, New York, Adam in Salt Lake City, John Whitty in Houston, uh, Dave in Rochester, New York, Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, Carmen in uh, Ridge, Pennsylvania, Chicago, Martin Fly, Dave in the Upper Peninsula, Scotland, 24-hour jukebox, Carlos in Texas, Florence, Italy, wow, Patrick from Rhode Island. Meredith Quinn in Eatonville, Washington, Indiana, San Antonio, Texas, right? Nate in Chicago, Yankee Tanky, San Angelo Solidarity, Lipzig, East Germany, Nate in Chicago, Joseph from Ortega, El Paso, Lipzig, East Germany. Oh, boy. AJ from NJ, right? New Zealand, Nathaniel in Washington, New Jersey, Kim in New Jersey, Micah from Las Vegas, Glasgow, Scotland, the People's Republic of Southwest Michigan. <laughs> All right. Very, very good. Very, 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 very good. All right, folks, we got some super chats to answer. Was Ukraine working with the Nazis during World War II? Well, okay, so, so the way that question is framed is not a good way. Person asks, was Ukraine working with the Nazis during World War II? No, there were a lot of very patriotic Ukrainians who didn't work with the Nazis. Many Ukrainians heroically fought the Nazis. Um, you know, this Dnieper Dam, which is the world's largest hydroelectrical power plant. The Ukrainians built it and they blew it up. Uh, so the Nazis couldn't use it during the war effort. And uh, there's a great movie uh, made by the writer Lillian Hellman. She made a great movie called The North Star. And it was a Hollywood movie about Ukrainian Ukrainian communists fighting the Nazis. You should go watch the North Star. It's a great movie. Um, so, you know, but yes, there were some Ukrainians who collaborated with the Nazis. Stepan Bandera is the, probably the most famous. He's the one the Ukrainian government has made into a hero. Uh, you know, there's also, uh, there was, what's his name? Ivan the Terrible, uh, Yatsenuk or whatever. It was this guy uh, uh, who was like a concentration camp guard, worked for the Nazis, who committed atrocities. Um, all right. Um, I can't talk about Myanmar. I can't talk about that uh, right now. I, I just can't get into that. But thank you for the super chat. But yes, most Ukrainians fought the Nazis, but some didn't, right? There were some, you know, collaborators, and that's unfortunate. Why did the Soviet Union go into Afghanistan in the 1980s? The Soviet Union went into Afghanistan for this reason. 
Um, imperialism caused the degeneration of the former USSR. Hmm. Not sure what that means, but we'll write it down. Degeneration. All right. So in the 1980s, um, and or actually really 1978, uh, in Afghanistan, you had a monarchy. Uh, in Afghanistan, there was a very big political party that was aligned with the Soviet Union. It was called the People's Democratic Party. A lot of generals in the Afghan military were part of that political party, right? Because it was right on the border with the Soviet Union. It was a monarchy. It was a capitalist country. It was very poor. It wasn't anti-imperialist. Um, but it was, it was a country, right? Um, and it was right on the Soviet's border. And the Soviets did business there and tried to be friendly. But, you know, the government also did business with the United States, and it was a government that tried to be neutral, right? They're right next to the Soviet Union, but they're not communists. They tried to have it both ways, right? That was basically what it was, um, 1978. Um, and 1978, um, you had, you know, this government, um, and the United States basically wanted to force the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan to take power. Right. They call it the Afghan trap. Brzezinski has admitted they called it the Afghan trap. So in 1978, um, you know, the Afghan monarchy started arresting and rounding up all the leaders of this really big political party called the People's Democratic Party. Um, and the People's Democratic Party was a big party. It had a lot of people in the military and they were being rounded up and arrested, thrown into the jail. So the leaders of the Afghan military that were, you know, part of the People's Democratic Party that were aligned with the Soviet Union, they said, well, we're not going to let you do that. We're not going to be arrested. So they went and they tore down the walls of the jail and they drove a tank through the walls of the jail and they freed their comrades and they overthrew the monarchy. And Afghanistan, they called it the Sour Revolution, S-A-U-R, uh, the Sour Revolution, it was called. And the Sour Revolution, how big is Ukraine? All right, we'll answer that, right? The Sour Revolution. Um, and the Sour Revolution uh, was 1978. You had the military that was aligned with the Soviet Union overthrowing the Afghan government. And they established the People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. And it was, it was a country led by a Marxist-Leninist party, the People's Democratic Party. And they became the leaders. Now, they had a lot of support in the cities, you know, among the intellectuals, among the, the military, among, among people, people in the more developed parts of Afghanistan. They had a lot of support. But in the countryside, they didn't have support, right? And almost immediately, the Saudis uh, began calling for a holy war, like a, a jihad, a global uprising of Muslims in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. And the Saudis started sending in weapons, and Osama bin Laden went to Afghanistan, and they started fighting in the countryside against the new Afghan government. Uh, the, the People's Democratic Party had a lot of support in the cities, but in the rural areas, people were very religious. People were very conservative um, and they didn't like the liberal policies, right? The Afghan People's Democratic government was teaching women to read. It was telling women to take off their headscarves at rallies where women took their headscarves off and refused to wear headscarves. And it was it was a pretty secular, anti-Islamic, you know, government. So the rural people of Afghanistan that were deeply religious and deeply conservative, uh, they didn't like the idea of women not wearing headscarves and they didn't like the idea of women going to school and learning to read. And, you know, and they felt like this was Russian communism being imposed on them. Uh, you know, so they were joining with Osama bin Laden to fight them. So Russia, the Soviet union, not wanting there to be a, an, you know, an Islamic terrorist extremist government set up on their border 
felt they were obligated at that point, um, you know, felt they were obligated to send their military into Afghanistan to stop the terrorism against the People's Democratic Republic. Uh, and so they did. Um, and that's what happened. And, you know, some people say, oh, you know, that was the Soviet Union military, militarily occupying Afghanistan, right? That was the Soviet Union, uh, you know, militarily occupying Afghanistan. Well, no, because you'll notice that Gorbachev cut off. He took, pulled the Soviet troops out of Afghanistan. Late 80s, the Soviet Union stopped supporting Afghanistan. But the People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan stayed in power long after the Soviet Union fell in 1991 and they were still in, they were still fighting. So if it was simply a Soviet front government, uh, it would have fallen immediately. The Soviet troops would have been out of there. They were out of there in like 89, 88, I forget which year Gorbachev pulled the Soviet troops out. But the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan kept fighting for another three, four, five years. So that shows you they had a very big base of support in the country. Um, so, you know, that's what happened. But yeah, the Soviet Union, they felt obligated to help their allies in the People's Democratic Republic. And then later, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was the main strategist of U.S. imperialism at the time, he admitted that, that it was all, it was called the Afghan trap. They wanted to, you know, create a situation where the Soviet Union felt they were forced, they were obligated to send their soldiers in, and then it would become a Vietnam. That's what he used. He said he, he gave the Soviet Union their own Vietnam, would weaken the country, et cetera. So that's what happened in Afghanistan. Next question, USA ending the INF Treaty. Yeah, well, the INF Treaty, that was ended by Donald Trump. Uh, that was the intercontinental uh, nuclear forces, right? It's the idea that it's these short-range nukes, right? The idea was that uh, the USA wouldn't put any nukes in Europe and vice versa, right? They wouldn't have short-range nukes. Um, and that treaty has been ripped up, right? And uh, that was one thing. People said Donald Trump was a puppet of Russia, but he ripped up many nuclear treaties, many of the agreements that ended the Cold War, many of the nuclear agreements that Gorbachev signed, basically ending the arms race were destroyed by Donald Trump because Donald Trump got a lot of money from weapons manufacturers. And, you know, and that was, you know, something that he could do to help his weapons manufacturer friends. All right. Uh, why did Yugoslavia come apart? Well, Yugoslavia, you have to remember, first of all, so Yugoslavia was the first socialist country to stop aligning with, with the Soviet Union, right? You know, 1945, World War II ends, and the Socialist Republic of the Socialist Federation of Yugoslavia is created. There's a lot of different nationalities in Yugoslavia. You know, Croatians, Serbs, uh, Macedonians, um, you know, a lot of different nationalities in Yugoslavia, right? Different religious groups, different nationalities. It's a quite, quite diverse group of people, but they created one country, the Yugoslav Federal Republic. And it was led by Tito. Right. And, you know, Tito uh, was at first aligned with the Soviet Union, aligned with Stalin. Um, right. How do you see? Oh, OK. How does. Um, and it was aligned with the Soviet Union. It was a, a socialist country. But then in 1948, Tito denounced Stalin. And Tito said that the Soviet Union was trying to tell them what to do and was no good. And that Stalin wasn't a true Marxist. He wasn't democratic enough or something. So Yugoslavia denounced, denounced the Soviet Union and aligned with the United States in 1948. And that was a big deal because that was the first time any socialist country had cut ties with the Soviet Union. It was a really big deal. 
Um, and so the so you know Yugoslavia was anti-Soviet. Now Mao. Uh, met with Yugoslavia. There was tension between China and 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 the Soviet Union, even when Mao was alive. And Mao met with you know Tito, and it seemed to some degree or other, uh, you know, that Mao might might do what Tito did, right? But Mao ultimately stayed aligned with the Soviet Union until 1961. But you know, there was a moment there where. Yugoslavia and China were looking like they might be friendly and China might cut it off with, with the Soviet Union, but then they didn't. Right. But then, you know, then, you know, Yugoslavia was aligned with the United States. Um, and then from there, he had a situation where, um, where at that point um, you had, you had Yugoslavia as a socialist country led by a communist party that was aligned with the United States. And so then Yugoslavia started implementing what they called worker self-management, was basically instead of having a centrally planned economy, they made every factory an independent cooperative, right? And this is very interesting, that sold the products to the state, right? If you worked in the, uh, the camera factory in Yugoslavia, your factory got paid per camera and the government of Yugoslavia bought the cameras from the factory. And they said that this was more revolutionary. Right. It was the you know, worker self-management, right? The workers basically own the factory and sell their products to the state. They made the factories almost like the collective farms where they weren't, you know, it wasn't like just working in a state-owned industry where you just get paid a wage to do a work. It was was rather they got paid for how many products they produced. Uh, and that was the model that was introduced. And they presented it as being somehow more revolutionary. Uh, a lot of Trotskyites liked Yugoslavia at first and you know, it was it was basically kind of a, a break with the Soviet model of socialist development. Um, um, Tito died um, after Tito's death. There had always been ethnic divisions, uh, you know, very different peoples, different religious backgrounds, longstanding ethnic rivalries. The United States started funding separatist movements in Yugoslavia, right? The Soviet Union fell, but socialist Yugoslavia was still around. So the United States... Um, the United States started pouring money into, um, into you know, Croatian separatists, Macedonian separatists, et cetera. Um, and, oh, thank you very much. I really do appreciate that. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, started funding these ethnic separatist movements. And so Yugoslavia started breaking apart. Serbia was the part of Yugoslavia that remained under the leadership of the Communist Party, the Socialist Party. I think it changed its name to the Socialist Party, but it was led by Slobodan Milosevic, and they maintained state control, the means of production, etc. Um, so then, uh, then the United States worked with Saudi Arabia to foment an insurgency against the government of Yugoslavia. So Yugoslavia is historically or against the government of Serbia, and the government of Serbia, you know, Serbs tend to be Christians, right? They are Orthodox Christians. But in Kosovo, you had a lot of Albanians, right? When Albania had its counter-revolution, when Enver Hoxha's government was toppled, you had a lot of Albanian Muslims who moved into a region of Serbia called Kosovo. And they started taking up arms against the government of, of Serbia. And you had this, this, this civil war, right? Where, you know, um, you know, I'd love to have him on, by the way. He sounds like he's doing great stuff. I've heard of him and I'd love to have him on. Um, and, uh, you know, they, you know, they started, you know, taking up arms. The Kosovo Liberation Army, which was an Islamist, you know, theocratic government, um, you know, or theocratic Wahhabi Islamic fundamentalist group. They started fighting against the Serbian government. So 
The Serbian government was fighting them. It was a civil war that was going on. So then the U.S. media accused the government of, of Serbia of committing genocide against the, uh, against the, the ethnic Albanians, right? Against the, the, the Muslims and the ethnic Albanians in Kosovo. A lot of what we heard in the U.S. media was fake news, right? There was this famous photograph of a, of a Yugoslavian guy like standing on a, by a fence that had barbed wire on it. And a lot of people saw that and thought it was the Holocaust. But then it turned out that guy, he wasn't starving. He just had a disease, right? That he, he wasn't food deprived. And that barbed wire fence, they were not fenced in. It was just a fence that happened to be along the side of the road. And, and U.S. media deceptively, deceptively took that photo took that photo and made it look like Milosevic was rounding up, rounding up uh, ethnic Albanians and putting them in concentration camps, which is not what happened. It's not what happened. Um, And so because of that, because of that, the USA bombed, bombed Serbia um, and they destroyed a lot of churches. They bombed the Chinese embassy in Yugoslavia and they bombed the Chinese embassy and then killed Chinese diplomats and they, they, they destroyed churches and hospitals, and it was just a horrendous bombing that Bill Clinton did. Um, and then the economic suffering that followed the bombing set the stage for this synthetic left anarchist group that the CIA set up that was called, um, that was called Otpor. Their symbol was a fist, right? They sounded like a leftist group. It was this group of anarchists that were funded by George Soros. They destabilized Yugoslavia and ultimately toppled Milosevic. Um, and now uh, the details have come out, right? Uh, the, the UN has admitted that Slobodan Milosevic and the government of Yugoslavia, while they committed atrocities, there was a war going on, they did not commit genocide. They were not guilty of genocide. And while they committed atrocities, they weren't guilty of genocide. Um, it was all a, a, big, uh, a big disgrace. Uh, it was a big mess. And Kosovo has basically broken away from Yugoslavia and is now a UN colony. It doesn't really have its own autonomy. It's basically managed by the United Nations and the imperialist countries uh, basically, you know, have control over Kosovo. And, you know, there's a lot of minerals there. There's a lot of wealth there. And the imperialists basically have stolen a big chunk of Serbia for themselves. Um, you know, and there's a lot of Muslims who probably vehemently disagree with what I'm saying here because this was very much a Christian Muslim conflict. And in this instance, I, I would say that, that the Muslim insurgency among the ethnic Albanians was incited by the U.S. imperialists and by Yugoslavia. The Iranian, my Iranian friends would disagree with me on that. But, uh, you know, I, 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 that's what happened in Yugoslavia. Next question. All right. Right. Um, all right. The difference between empire and imperialists. Well, empires have been around since, you know, forever, right? Empires are, empires are part of, you know, the human experience. Um, you know, the, you know, I mean, the Roman Empire, the Egyptian Empire, Mesopotamia, you know, empires are just, you know, big swaths of territory, right? Um, and empires in Eurasia have a different connotation. There are different kinds of empires, right? You know, um, for example, the Roman Empire uh, was very much, it was about dominating trade. The Romans didn't care. You know, read the Bible, right? You want to know a great example of this, read the Bible right? You read the Bible, they talk about King Herod, right? And, it, and it's, it's ancient Palestine, ancient Palestine in the year, you know, in the year, you know, BC, right? You know, first century BC or whatever. Ancient Palestine is run by this guy named King Herod. Wait a second. I thought it was part of the Roman empire. Yeah, it's because the Romans didn't care, right? That's how the Roman empire worked is local kings, local areas. They let you basically be in power. You just had to send slaves to Rome 
and you had to send goods. You had to send food and products to Rome and you couldn't trade with anyone. They were the monopoly in global trade. And, you know, so there was a king in, in, in Palestine, King Herod, right? And there was this king, there was a king in Persia and all the city-states, Athens, Alexandria, you know, they all had kings of their own. Uh, but but the Romans basically dominated you and forced you to pay tribute and forced you to, to you know, pay tribute to the empire. They built the roads and you couldn't trade with any other part of the empire. They were the center middleman in trade. That was the Roman Empire, right? But there are different empires that operated differently, right? And, and different empires had different models. Mesopotamia, Hammurabi, all of that was done very differently, right? Uh, the way the Egyptians ruled, right? And the way they dominated was very differently, right? And that, that you know, empire just means one group that dominates a lot of countries. Um, and it just kind of vaguely refers to that, right? And you have, you know, the Roman Empire, you have, you know, the various Greek city-states, uh, you have, you know... You know, the Persian Empire, uh, which was around for a long time. And, and, you know, there's a lot of different Babylon. And I mean, you know, the ancient world is full of empires. The Aztecs had an empire in Mexico. The Aztecs, the Incas had an empire uh, in, in South America. The Incas had an empire. They dominated that whole area. And that empire, that's what it refers to. And in Eurasia, and this is a very important thing that a lot of people have a really hard time understanding. And, and you know, if you don't understand it, you know, you're going to give me flack for saying it, but I'll point this out in Eurasia. Okay. In China and in Russia in particular, there is a lot of positive feeling about empires because of the fact that those regions are landlocked. They're not, they don't have ocean access, right? I mean, there's ocean on one side, ocean on another, but most of China doesn't have ocean access. Most of Russia and, and Eurasia doesn't have ocean access. And things have gotten better in China and in Russia when those areas are together. And that's just a fact. When the peoples of China were fighting with each other, when there was a kingdom in Tibet and a kingdom in Shanghai and a kingdom in Hong Kong and, 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 and the Uyghurs were separate and the, you know, um, Poja and Ceausescu. Um, you know, when the Uyghurs were separate and the Tibetans were separate, that's when China has been weak. But in China, there is a lot of admiration still today for the Qing dynasty, which was a brutal, oppressive regime that tortured people and killed people and slaughtered whole villages. It was an awful authoritarian regime. But a lot of Chinese people have very positive feelings about the Qing dynasty because they unified all of China. And when all of China was unified, living standards got better. Roads got built, trade was established. It was good for China to be together. As bad and authoritarian as the Qing dynasty was, when all of China was together, that was good. Um, you know, supposedly taking Chernobyl. All right. Okay. All right. So, so there's a lot of admiration for the Qing dynasty and their empire. Uh, in in China and in Russia, there's a lot of admiration for various Russian imperialists, or I shouldn't say imperialists, but Russian empire builders, right? Ivan the Terrible is widely respected because he unified all of Russia. Uh, Alexander Nevsky is widely respected, right? Um, Catherine the Great. And that there's a feeling that when all the countries in that area are all together, 
life gets better. And that's true. That's part of why Stalin was able to carry out those economic miracles that he carried out. The reason Stalin was able to wipe out illiteracy and electrify the whole Soviet Union and build so many universities, all of those parts of the world, that part of the world, the Soviet Union, were all together. And, and so empire in China and in, and in the former Soviet Union, it doesn't have the same connotation, right? So in a lot of places, you'll read Russian thinkers and Russian scholars. They'll, they'll speak in a positive way about an empire. And we read that as, oh, they want to be the Romans. They want to be the British Empire. They want to go take people over. Not the same. Not the same thing at all. Not the same thing at all. Right? That, that what it means is that, that when we're all together in these landlocked regions, life gets better. Okay? And that, that's just a historical fact. If you look at the history of China, you look at the history of, of Russia and the surrounding countries, when they're all unified, life gets better. When they're divided and fighting with each other and religious and ethnic groups are killing each other and they're divided, that's when life gets worse. So if you look over thousands of years of history in Eurasia, right? Because the United States, right? We came, we stole this country from the Native Americans like 300, 400 years ago, right? Well, you know, I mean, Eurasia, they've been doing that for 5,000 years. You know, China's been around for 5,000 years. So there's a lot of history. And when they're together, they're better. When they're divided, they're not. And so you'll find Chinese writers, Russian writers who will talk positively about empire. That doesn't mean imperialism. Now let's get to the definition of imperialism. This is a very good question, King. Imperialism is a totally different thing. Imperialism is an economic system. Imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. It is monopoly capitalism. It is when capitalism, which is production organized for profit, uh, the, the banks, factories, and industries being privately owned and operated to make money, uh, it's when capitalism enters the stage of monopoly, when a few big banks and a few corporations dominate the economy of entire countries. When, when big corporations dominate entire countries, the only way they can keep growing, right, because the law of capitalism is expand or die, right? They call it the general law of capitalist accumulation, that if a capitalist corporation doesn't expand, then it collapses, right? That, that, that the capitalist must you know, make more profits to then invest and make more profits and then invest and make more profits. That's how capitalist corporations work, that when capitalism reaches the stage of monopoly, Right. And when capitalism in America reached the stage of monopoly, when capitalism in France reached the state of monopoly, Britain, et cetera. Right. And this is about the 1880s, 1890s, around that time. That at that point, the monopolies based in Western countries started engaging in what's called the export of capital. The big corporations, the monopolies, the trusts, the cartels, the syndicates based in Western capitalist countries started expanding and dominating the economies of other countries. And that's called the export of capital, where basically, in order to keep these capitalist com companies that had already expanded from, from, from collapsing, they had to keep expanding. So they started dominating the economies of South and Central America. And they started dominating the economies of Africa. And they started dominating the economies of Asia, of China in particular, right? The opium wars. You had the HSBC Bank, the Hong Kong-Shanghai banking system. It was set up so British bankers could dominate and control China. 
right? You you had, uh, you know, in the Belgians, right? Belgium had, you know, the rubber corporations in Belgium had, had established, you know, the state of monopoly. So they went to the Congo and they dominated the economy of the Congo and they started working the people to death. You can read about the genocide that was committed in the Congo and you had the British in the Boer War and the British in South Africa and Cecil Rhodes and Rhodesia and the Rhodesia colonial settler apartheid state were being created. And this is, this is an economic term. Lenin talked about capitalism in its monopoly stage is imperialism. It's when the monopolistic associations of capitalists based in Western countries, in order to keep expanding, they have to go to countries around the world and set up shop and export their corporations to developing countries. And what's important to remember is they go to those countries and they hold back economic development. They prevent those countries from developing their own businesses and their own economy. Right. You know, when those Belgians in the Congo, when King Leopold of Belgium was, you know, his rubber corporation was making a lot of money off of rubber. When they expanded into Belgium, they didn't set up, you know, they didn't help Belgians get, you know, they didn't help when they expanded into the Congo. They didn't help people in the Congo get wealthy, you know, and start their own rubber company. No, they went there and they put them to work for the rubber company of King Leopold and worked them to death. Right. Um, And that was the idea is that they were, you know, they, they exported the Belgian corporation to the Congo, and they worked millions, probably 6 million people to death uh, to make super profits for the Belgian corporation. It was the export of capital, right? Uh, You know, when the British textile companies went to India, they burned down all the textile looms. And did they go to India and help people in India become wealthy and help them expand their textile production? No. The textile industry of, of Britain went into India, burned down all the textile looms, forced the people of India to buy their products from a British company, right? And that was the export of capital. Uh, You know, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, what was Mahatma Gandhi jailed for? Mahatma Gandhi was jailed for boiling salt water. You ever heard of this? He was was jailed for boiling salt water, right? Because he wanted to make his own salt. Because when the British went to India, they decided that all the people of India were going to have to buy salt from British corporations. Well, Mahatma Gandhi, he got, you know, got his salt water from the ocean and he started boiling it. And they arrested him for that. And they said, that's, that's stealing from the British corporations because the British salt corporations had dominated India's economy, the export of capital. The companies in Britain that sold salt went to India and said, all right, you know, you know, you, now you have to buy your salt from us. And if you were boiling seawater, you were stealing from them, right? This is imperialism. It's the export of capital. It is capitalism in its monopoly stage. That is imperialism. So when we talk about empires, which are just kind of formations that have been around as part of human history. And in Eurasia, it has a different connotation. It's different than the Romans, et cetera. And when you talk about imperialism, which is an economic system, these are two different concepts. All right. Next question. (sighs) Russia kicked out of SWIFT. That won't happen because if it did, you have to look at, okay, look at a map. Right. Get your map out because we Americans were not taught to look at our map. That's one of the best things my parents did. I'm not thrilled with everything my parents did when I was growing up. I don't you know, I'm critical of my parents in some ways. One good thing is we had a map in our house. There was a map on the wall in the kitchen. And often when we were talking at the dinner table, they would point to the map. Get out a map. Right. And look at Russia and look at all the countries that are right next to Russia. Germany, Norway. Sweden, Denmark, Belgium, Luxembourg, Italy, Switzerland. Look at all those countries, right? Kicking Russia out of the SWIFT system 
would mean that all of those countries cannot send money to Russia or get money from Russia. That's what that would mean. Finland, Kinky says. That's what that would mean. All of those countries that are right next to Russia, they can't buy any product from Russia, they can't bank transfer to Russia, and they can't get any products back from Russia. If Russia got kicked out of the SWIFT banking system, that would collapse the world economy. Immediately, all of those countries wouldn't be able to buy any products or sell any products to Russia, which is a very big country right on their border. That would collapse the world economy. It, it, it would result, I mean, if you think things are bad and inflation and all that's bad and all that, that would immediately result in mass unemployment. Like thousands and thousands and thousands of businesses would immediately go out of business. Um, you know, stores all across Western Europe would not have products in them, right? Uh, you know, corporations and I mean, it would be a disaster. You know, it would for the United States, it wouldn't be as bad. It would be really bad, really, really bad, really, really bad for Europe. The United States, it would be shitty, but it would be really bad for Europe. The Germans would be completely screwed. Uh, the Swiss would be screwed. The Finns would be screwed. The Norwegians would be screwed. The, the Swedes would be screwed. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, it would be a disaster. And that's why Joe Biden can't do it. And that's why I'm blown away by Joe Biden's stupidity. But he would think he could do that. I mean, that's the, I mean, it's like he would think that, oh, yeah, we can just kick Russia out of the SWIFT. And I mean, did he did he think maybe to check with the Europeans before making that threat? Biden looked like a complete doofus today. I don't know if you saw the press conference. He looked like a doofus. They're like, are you going to kick Russia out of the SWIFT system? And he's like, well, you know, well, you know, the European, he looked like a doofus. He said, we're going to kick Russia out of the SWIFT system. And then he didn't do it. And he looked like a complete doofus. Russia called his bluff. And Biden looked like a doofus. And anyone who knew anything about the world economy knows you can't kick Russia out of the SWIFT system. You can't do that. Now, they've kicked Iran out of the SWIFT system. And that sucks for Iran. And that really hurts Iran's economy. But, you know, they're able to do it. They've kicked Cuba out of the SWIFT system. Uh, but kicking Iran out of the SWIFT system? <laughs> yeah. Or kicking Russia out of the SWIFT system? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. You know? And that's why Biden, I mean, he's just, I mean, yeah, there you go. All right. Will the Azov Battalion continue to exist? Well, you know, that's a good question. If I was the Ukrainian leader, I would have dissolved the Azov Battalion like years ago. You want to talk about bad PR, all right? I mean, you want to talk about bad PR. Having a Nazi division of your armed forces is like the, the worst optics you can ever have. So the fact that they haven't, it's been eight years since the coup that brought, you know, that brought the, the government in Ukraine to power. It's been eight years. And the fact that they haven't kicked them out yet, it means that I think that the Azov Battalion, it has a certain kind of propaganda value to the Ukrainian state. The Ukrainian government, you know, that emerged from the 2014 coup, that government depends on this narrative of the history of Ukraine where the Soviet Union are the bad guys and Russia are the bad guys. It depends on that. So that Azov battalion is so important to their whole narrative that Russia is evil and Stalin is evil and Russia is responsible for all of Ukraine's problems. Cultivating ultra-nationalist elements like the Azov battalion is so important to the Ukrainian state. It's so dependent on those people uh, that it can't dissolve them. 
Uh, you know, and one of the, the reasons we're in this crisis, part of the reason we're in this crisis is Zelensky is a bit of a moderate, right? Many people are pointing out Zelensky is Jewish, right? He's not a Nazi. He's Jewish. And Zelensky very much came into office trying to calm this shit down. And he promised he was going to destabilize, bring things back together. Um, petrodollar. All right. Okay. Right. He was going to bring things back together. And that was what he promised to do. Right. And and these groups immediately started protesting against him immediately. They started protesting against him, calling for a new maiden, threatening him. And a lot of the military are led by those guys. So Zelensky was constantly being pushed on by these people every time he would try to, like, move like he was going to start, you know, making peace with the people in the eastern regions. Immediately, these people would push on him. And a lot of the military operations that go on in, you know, that were going on against the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. A lot of them were going on, it, it appears. Now, I don't know this for a fact, but according to what I've read and according to rumors and such, it looks like a lot of the military operations that were taking place against the people of Donetsk and Lugansk were going on without Zelensky's permission. The generals were just doing them. So, you know, the USA cultivated these extremist elements. The Ukrainian people elected Zelensky in the hope he would calm things down. And it looks like there's been a gap. Um, and this, this crisis is only going to exacerbate the gap, but if they haven't dissolved the Azov battalion by now, that means that the Ukrainian government, the post-coup government in Ukraine is so dependent on cultivating these extremists. Um, they can't, they can't do anything. They, they, they kind of have no choice. All right. Um, why does Trump praise Putin's actions? Well, there's a couple reasons. Number one, um, you know, there's a divide in the American ruling class right now. The big oil monopolies and the big bankers are with with Joe Biden, right? But look who look at who is supporting Trump. My pillow, my pillow. That guy supports Trump, right? Uh, what other guy supports Trump? You got Betsy DeVos, the Tupperware Amway multi-level marketing scheme heiress, the inheritor of the the uh, Amway multi-level marketing scam enterprise also does a lot of private military contracting. Betsy DeVos. So you got Betsy DeVos. Oh, you got the hardware guy. What's his name? Uh, you know, Bernie Marcus. You got Bernie Marcus. You got the Koch brothers, right? That hate big oil companies. They're like a little oil company that's competing. They were funders of the Libertarian Party. And Trump seems to be in, and they got the fracking companies that like Trump. Trump seems to be in a faction of the ruling class that is more against China because China doesn't have oil. China doesn't have oil, right? China is not a competitor, uh, you know, with the big oil companies. China is an oil importing company, country, right? China imports oil. Russia is a competitor with the big oil companies. ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, and Chevron hate Russia because Russia is very much, you know, competing with them and selling oil and gas on the natural market and competing with them. However, my pillow guy, you know, if you buy a pillow in the United States and it's not made by my pillow, it's not made by that dude. What's his name again? Uh, Mike Lindell. If it's not made by Mike Lindell, former crack addict and CEO, you know, from crack addict to CEO, I'm Mike Lindell. I'm Mike Lindell. I make pillows. If it's not made by Mike Lindell, there's a very good chance. Where's your pillow going to be made? China. Right. Mike Lindell doesn't care about Russia selling oil and gas on the international market. My pillow, he cares about he cares about China making better pillows and making pillows cheaper and flooding the market with cheap pillows. So Mike Lindell is going to be more worried about China, right? Bernie Marcus, you go to 
You go to Home Depot. Are you buying barrels of oil and natural gas at Home Depot? No, you're buying wrenches, you're buying plastic products, you're buying. And so think about it. Is, is, is Home Depot guy and the capitalists who make his products, is he worried about oil and natural gas companies putting him out of business? No, he's worried about China producing, you know, better wrenches and better, you know, better plastic products and better, better nails and better, you know, whatever the hell you buy at Home Depot, ropes and chains and, and, you know, uh, you know, you know, mouse traps and, you know, cockroach extermination spray and whatever the hell you buy at Home Depot. He's worried about that. There's a division in the ruling class. It's a lot like what happened during the Roosevelt years, right? The Rockefellers were with Roosevelt, but the National Association of Manufacturers, right? Henry Morgan, Henry Ford, they were, they were against Roosevelt. They were sympathetic to fascism. So, you know, this is, this is the divide. And it seems like, yeah, that Trump is with these lower level capitalists who don't find Russia to be a very big threat. And, you know, if, the, if Russia puts more oil and gas on the market, then the price of oil and gas goes down. Whereas if, you know, if Russia stays off the market and there's scarcity of oil and gas, the price of oil and gas goes up, right? So ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, and Chevron, they're more worried about Russia. Whereas MyPillow and, you know, hardware guy, uh, Bernie Marcus, and he's worried about, he's worried about China. And that's the divide, okay? There's that. But there's also another reason, which is optics, okay? Donald Trump, appeals to illiberal optics. And this is this is why BreadTube and all of them, this is what they don't get, right? You know, Donald Trump appeals to people who've been in the military. He seems like a tough guy. He's a big, strong guy. He's going to crush them. America first. He, you know, he appeals to kind of an authoritarian, illiberal vibe. Whereas Joe Biden, he's, oh, he's weak. He's compassionate. Oh, he just wants to be a nice guy. And no one in my administration will ever yell at anybody. You know, Joe Biden appeals to more of a liberal woke mindset. Kamala Harris, you know, woman of color and, you know, and, and you know, and she's, you know, you know, so it's, it's again, you have to, you, what are your supporters looking for psychologically, right? Well, Joe Biden's supporters in the, in the blue states and in the urban areas, middle-class folks are looking for a nice, compassionate, caring guy who will take care of them. That's Joe Biden. They're looking for a strong woman of color, breaking glass ceilings. That's Kamala Harris. Trump supporters are looking for a big, strong leader who's going to march the country to better times, right? So Trump is constantly trying to appeal to the psychology of people who want a strong authoritarian leader. Um, and because of that, what is Putin? Putin is a strong leader. Putin is a former, former KGB guy. He's built. I mean, you've seen the pictures of him with his shirt off. He's built. He's strong. He fixed Russia's economy. Putin, on some level, appeals to people who like Trump. So if Trump can kind of associate himself with Putin, that will make Trump more appealing, right? So there's, a, there's an optics element to it, too, because Trump was not a pro-Russian president. Trump sent lethal weapons to Ukraine. Obama wouldn't send lethal weapons to Ukraine. Trump did. Uh, Trump ripped up uh, nuclear treaties that, you know, Biden has stopped that. Now, Biden has has stopped ripping up nuclear treaties. As, as anti-Russian as Biden is, that's one button he won't touch is this nuclear thing. So, you know, it sounds to me like, you know, there's a, there's, there's, there's a psychological element to it also. Because at the end of the day, Trump hates Putin. Trump hates, hates Xi Jinping. All of them hate all anti-imperialist countries, but their short-term interest is China a bigger economic threat 
or is Russia a bigger economic threat? So there's that factor, which is economic, right? Are you in the oil and gas business or are you in the in the um, in the manufacturing business? There's that. But then there's also a psychological thing at the end of the day. Trump appeals to people's desire for illiberalism, which, folks, I got news for you. And this is a big part of why I support the trucker convoy, despite realizing those folks are politically out to lunch, crazy anti-communist right-wingers. I support the trucker convoy. There's a reason that I, you know, that I, that I am telling people we got to get out of the movement to the masses. Folks, socialism is illiberal. Socialism is illiberal. Socialism is illiberal. Working class people are illiberal. Working class people want a strong leader who will get the job done. This being triggered by, oh, it's a scary authoritarian leader, and I want a woman of color to be see that women in color are empowered, and I wanna, I wanna see, you know, Joe Biden be so nice and says no one on his staff can yell at anybody. That's a middle class thing. Right? Listen to Minister Louis Farrakhan. Right, very popular African American leader. Whenever he speaks, whenever Minister Louis Farrakhan speaks in a major city around the United States, there's two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand people who pile in to see Minister Louis Farrakhan. Black people in the United States are very working class, and black people in the United States they love Minister Farrakhan. Why? Because he is illiberal, and he's got you know guys in uniforms standing next to him, and he gives fiery, powerful speeches. Working class people are illiberal. Working class people like Trump. Working class people of color like Minister Louis Farrakhan. They liked Malcolm X. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I mean, go down the line, right? Uh, you know, that, that, you know, that, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was very much the leader of the black middle class and he was loved by white liberals. But Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad were the leaders of the black working class and the urban black working class felt aligned with black nationalism. Um, you know, you can talk about, um, about Marcus Garvey. Um, and you know, you know, working class people in general, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a working class town. A lot of people I went to school with served in the military. A lot of people I went to school with served in the military. There were people I went to school with who had relatives in prison. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, and, and working class life is much more authoritarian. That's just the reality of the situation. And working class people uh, were economically struggling. They don't have the privilege of just getting to sit back and saying, I don't want to feel triggered. I want to feel comfortable that are economically struggling. They tend to favor a strong leader who will get shit done. And what do you think Stalin means? What does Stalin mean in, in English? Stalin is, means man of steel. Look at Fidel Castro. Look at President Ortega in Venezuela or in Nicaragua. Look at Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Look at Xi Jinping, right? Every socialist country you've ever been to has had strong leaders. Folks, the woke, middle-class, liberal NGO kids are not going to bring socialism to the United States. The people who will bring socialism to the United States are going to be the black people, the black working class, the kind of black folks who like Minister Farrakhan, uh, you know, who like the Nation of Islam, who like the Black Panther Party, the, the, the white folks who like Trump right now and serve in the military. And that's who's going to bring socialism to the United States. It's going to be the working class. And the working class is going to want to be socialists on an illiberal basis. Okay. And, and the more liberal the socialist movement becomes, the more, if you hear me clap once, if you hear me clap twice, 
You hear me clap three times. You know, the more that we get like that, the more the right wing are going to dominate working class circles because socialism is illiberal. The working class, black, white, Arab, Asian, Latino, they want, they want a strong leader who will get shit done. And if leftism doesn't offer that, then, you know, only the right will. And that's why, as much as I understand how many, how much Canadian folks hate those trucker folks, trust me, the Tea Party here is just as disgusting. We got to support them. And we got to find a way, as hard as it might be, to convince some of those people that socialism will make their life better. And that's why we got to get out of the movement to the masses. And that's why we got to stop playing by the bread tube rules because it's going to be, it'll be the children of people who voted for Trump that will bring socialism to the United States. That's how it's going to be. And you can pretend that that's not the case, but it'll be, it won't be, you know, the Trump voters, a lot of them are boomers. You know, you know, it's not like we're going to have socialism tomorrow. A lot of them will be dead by that time, but it will be the children of Trump voters. It'll be the, you know, the, the, the people of red states. It'll be urban African-American folks. It'll be Chicano people in the Southwest. Uh, you know, it'll be hardworking Asian Americans. It's going to be working class people who bring socialism to the United States. It's not going to be hippies. It's not going to be middle-class hipsters. It's going to be working class people who bring socialism to the United States. So if we don't start to, you know, to chuck the wokeness, and if we don't start to chuck the middle-class stuff, and if we don't start to develop a, an illiberal working class appeal for socialism, if we don't, we don't learn to get the American flag out and wave the American flag, if we don't learn to talk about a government of action that fights for working families, if we can't reinvent socialism to have the kind of appeal that Trump had, we're going to lose. Uh, and you can guarantee that. And uh, if you don't believe me, look at any socialist country, right? That's just how these things work. So, you know, take it or leave it. There's probably a lot of people who hear this and they just, they just, you know, they don't want to hear that. But the reality is people want a strong leader who will get shit done. That's what socialism offers. Capitalism is unstable. It causes chaos. It leads us into wars. You know, the roads are unpaid. People don't have jobs, but socialism is I'm a leader who's going to come in and you're going to get jobs and healthcare and education. I'm going to mobilize the country to get better. I'm going to fight for you against these big corporations. I'm going to be a strong, powerful leader who will fight for you against the big monopolies. That is what, that is what, that is what socialism can offer. And that is illiberal. So that was kind of a tangent, but it was necessary. Anyway, um, uh, that that addressed the other one about why Trump seemed pro-Putin but anti-China. All right. Similarities between Russia's actions and Vietnam's actions against Pol Pot. I can see that. Yeah, right. Pol Pot, you know, was slaughtering the allies of Vietnam in, in Cambodia, right? He was slaughtering the Marxist-Leninist wing of his own party. Um, and then he engaged in provocations against Vietnam. So then Vietnam intervened and went into Cambodia. Yeah, that's a very, very similar. Yeah, I can see the whoever asked that question made a very astute historical comparison. There you go. Very good. Very, very, very good. Why did Saddam Hussein invade Kuwait in 1991? Well, one of the main reasons was the USA gave him permission. Believe it or not, Iraq thought that the USA was okay with him doing that, right? The Iraq, you have to remember that, you know, at the beginning of the Iraq-Iran war, the United States was supporting Iraq against Iran. 
And then the United States kind of pivoted towards supporting Iran against Iraq. And then the Iraq-Iran war came to an end, and Iraq was trying to establish a better relationship with the United States. And um, at that point, you know, you can you, you can look it up. You know, Iraq was given permission by the United States to invade Kuwait. They thought they were allowed to do it. That's one of the main reasons they did it. Now, there was also, there were some provocations. There were like sea, sea routes, if I'm not mistaken, that were like cut off. Um, there's some disputed territory, you know, regardless. And the Kuwaiti monarchy, that's the other thing is the Kuwaiti monarchy that the USA was defending was totally not democratic in any conceivable way. But regardless, yeah, Iraq thought they had permission. That's why they invaded Kuwait. There you go. All right. Am I concerned that RT will be shut down? Of course I'm concerned about that, right? I mean, that, that's on my mind, right? I mean, during a crisis like this, am I worried that I won't have a job? Sure, right? Um, but, you know, I, I just have to keep going, right? And that, uh, you know, I'm an anti-imperialist and I do my YouTube channel and I do, I'm building the Center for Political Innovation and I'm writing articles and, you know, I, you know, you never know what might happen. Um, you know, but I'm not going to shut up. I mean, they'll have to throw me in jail if they want to shut me up, which that may happen too. There may be a time where they just decide this guy is too strong of an anti-imperialist voice. We're going to make up some bullshit charge against him. We're going to accuse him of, I don't know what they would accuse me of. Accuse me. You know, there's a book called, there's actually a book called three felonies a day. And it says that if you're a professional in the United States, they can get you, it can get you for anything. You commit three felonies a day. There isn't, I mean, you know, read this book. They can prosecute anybody. For anything. And there may come a time where they do to me what they did to Lyndon LaRouche, uh, what they did to many revolutionary leaders, William Z. Foster, Gus Hall. They may, you know, just decide to come after me and put me in jail. That's the only way they're going to shut me up. I'll tell you my, much. And even in jail, I'll give interviews. I'll write articles. I'll do what I can. Right. But, you know, they're going to want to shut me up at some point. Right. They will come for me. Um, you know, they may shut down RT, but I'll keep going. I'm going to keep spreading an anti-imperialist message, whether I do it on RT or I do it on my own website or YouTube. I'm not going away. I'm going to keep doing this, right? I'm committed to this. I risked my life on a ship trying to get to Yemen to bring humanitarian aid. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I mean, I, that annoys me. All these people who think, oh, he's just doing that because he gets paid. He just does that because he gets paid. Bullshit. Bullshit. I was doing this long before I ever worked at RT. Go back to my college days. Anyone who went to college with me, they all hated me because I was constantly arguing with the professors in favor of anti-imperialism. I wasn't getting a cent, you know. Um, give me a break. Give me a break. No, trust me. If I if RT shut down tomorrow, I would still be on YouTube screaming against imperialism. I'd still be building the Center for Political Innovation. That's not going to stop me. Um, you know, I mean, I, I love my job at RT. It's really, really great to do what I do. And I love RT. I'm so proud of the work that we do. I think RT is one of the most amazing TV channels in the world. And we do such amazing stuff. And there are many days at my job where I'm just like, yes, I love my job. But that said, if RT were shut down, I mean, it would be a blow. It would suck. Um, my life, it would obviously be a big financial blow to me. It would, it would probably, you know, cause a lot of things in my life to change. But would I stop being an anti-imperialist? No. No, give me a break. I mean, I'm sorry. I was an anti-imperialist long before this. When I was in high school, I was against the Iraq war and got in a lot of trouble for it. And, you know, and, and when I was in college, I was always making everybody mad and skipping class and going to anti-imperialist rallies and putting up posters on my campus. And, you know, and I was part of Occupy Wall Street. And come on, come on. You think I'm going to stop? I mean, no, I'm not going to stop. The only way they're going to stop me 
is they're going to have to, you know, put me in jail. They're going to have to kill me or something. And don't think they won't do it. Don't think they won't do it. Come on, Boston. Now, come on, come on. I mean, so often, every so often I see, you know, I see comments in the chat that are like, give me a break. You know what I mean? I can't answer every question. And sometimes, sometimes I do see questions that I don't answer because it's like, come on. For the most part, I'll answer any question. The Kremlin has compromising material on Trump. No, no, uh, that's been debunked. The Steele dossier was not credible. And they went ahead with Christopher Steele's dossier, even though it wasn't credible. The PP tape, that never happened. That's all been debunked. Um, and it's actually a scandal. They went ahead with it because it didn't happen. It didn't happen. So no, no, wrong, wrong. How would you convince someone who's been watching BBC for years? Well, you just have to tell them the facts about what's going on. You have to point out to them, you know, what's happened in Ukraine. Nobody knows anything about this. Most average Americans think that Putin was having a bad day and he's like, all right, I'm going to go get Ukraine. You just have to explain to them what's going on in the country. You have to show them pictures of, you have to show them this monument that no one in American mainstream media is talking about. You have to tell them the facts. That's what you have to do. Um, that's your only option there. All right. Next question. Will Zelensky flee uh, Ukraine, fight Russia? I don't know what he's going to do. I think there's a very good chance that the uh, the Azov Battalion and the Ukrainian far right is going to remove him at this point. They're going to say he let this happen. Uh, they'll either vote him out and vote in an extremist right-wing candidate, or they'll the military will remove him. I think Zelensky may, was not going to be in power in Ukraine very much longer, because Zelensky's whole approach is that he was going to fix this. And if you look at the situation in Ukraine, it ain't fixed, I'll tell you that much. So um, I think Zelensky is not going to be in power in Ukraine for very long. I don't think he's going to flee Ukraine necessarily, but I don't think he's going to be running the country for much longer. I'll tell you that much. Um, um, imperialism caused the degeneration of the USSR. Well, I agree with that because the U.S. imperialists, you know, had a blockade against the USSR. They forced the USSR into an arms race where they had to spend all kinds of, of money that, and, and waste their resources developing nukes and weapons to protect themselves from U.S. attack. Um, you know, they ultimately had an imperialist uh, manipulation campaign, the synthetic left and the, the ideological deterioration of the Soviet Communist Party. Um, there was a lot of things that, yes, the imperialists did ultimately bring down the USSR. I think the person asking the question, though, is saying that the USSR became imperialist. And that's what brought them down. And that's not true. That's not accurate. You'll hear that in American media a lot. But I explained earlier what imperialism is. The USSR was the opposite of imperialist. All the countries they were trading with, they were industrializing them, developing, helping their domestic industries to flourish. Uh, the USSR was not an empire. It was not an empire in the economic sense. It was not imperialist. You can argue it might have been like the Qing dynasty, it might have been like Ivan the Terrible, but it wasn't like the Roman Empire. It wasn't like British imperialism. It was not imperialist in the economic sense. All right. It was the opposite. How big is Ukraine? Well, I think that's a funny question because that's probably meant as a gotcha question. There are many different answers to that. There are many different answers to that question because Ukraine's borders have been drawn and redrawn many times. Uh, you know, uh, Ukraine didn't have Crimea in it until Khrushchev uh, came along. And Stalin added a bunch of territory to Ukraine. And Lenin added a bunch of territory to Ukraine. And before Lenin, there wasn't even a separate Ukraine. It was part of the, the Russian Empire. So, yeah, how big is Ukraine? I don't know. I really don't know, right? And, I mean, I ask Ukrainian, how big do they think Ukraine is, right? I mean, do they, do they, do they think it's Khrushchev big? Do they think it's Stalin big? Do they think it's Lenin big? That was kind of the point of Putin's big speech the other night, uh, is that nobody knows how big Ukraine is. How big is Ukraine is a question that nobody can agree on, right? I mean, you know, these, these Ukrainian nationalists, the ultra-nationalists, Zelensky and all of that, they think Ukraine is Khrushchev big. 
but they also hate Lenin. And there would be no Ukraine at all if it wasn't for Lenin. And then, you know, uh, you know, and then they also hate Stalin. But Ukraine got even bigger under Stalin. And then Khrushchev made it, you know, include Crimea. So it's like, yeah, Ukraine's borders have been redrawn many, many times. So I don't know how big Ukraine is. That's something that the Russians and the Ukrainians and the people of Donetsk and Lugansk have got to figure out. I don't know how Ukraine is, how big Ukraine is. And that's actually probably the biggest point of contention. That's what the war is about. There's a war going on in Ukraine right now. That's what they're fighting about. That is the issue at hand. How big is Ukraine? And it looks like that's going to be determined on the battlefield, which is not cool and not, not, not a good situation. But that's, that is the point of contention right now in Ukraine is how big is Ukraine? And right now, it, it's not clear. So there you go. I'm hoping that painting comes back. I pushed the wrong button, but life goes on. That totally real painting behind me. Totally not like a TV screen or anything. Totally not a flat screen TV behind me. It's a totally real painting. Uh, yeah, I'm joking, of course. All right, next question. Next question. Um, how does the Ukraine-Russia conflict impact anti-imperialism? Well, look, uh, it's separating the sheep from the goats, right? Look, you can't be neutral at this point, right? You got some people that are just blatantly repeating the State Department line. They're having peace rallies, but the peace rallies are against Russia. Uh, you know, and those people are completely ridiculous. They're a completely synthetic left. Then you have people like Kyle Kalinsky that are trying to have it both ways. Well, well, we don't want to be totally pro-Russia, but we also, and that's, that's, that's BS. And then there's people like us. Look, we, the patriotic socialist current, we are the vanguard on this. And that's one thing. I, I just want to use this to comment on that. Right. I just want to use this opportunity to comment on that because, okay, all these people think that because we're patriotic, right? Can I get this to, right? There we go. All right. Because we're patriotic socialists, because we wave the American flag, we're social chauvinists. Oh, I don't know. You wave an American flag. That means you support U.S. imperialism. You wave an American flag. That means that you want to, you support slavery and genocide. Oh my God, you're racist because you wave an American flag. Caleb is a neo-Nazi because he's a patriotic socialist. I've heard this endlessly, right? Especially since the Communist Party wrote their stupid hit piece on you. Over and over and over. You know, the American flag is a flag of imperialism. The Center for Political Innovation, Haas, Jackson Hinkle, they wave the American flags. Therefore, they're not anti-imperialist. Bullshit. Name one political grouping that is more pro-Lugansk and pro-Donetsk than we are, right? We are the most anti-imperialist you've ever seen. We have come out swinging in support of Lugansk and Donetsk. We, we have officially recognized the Donetsk People's Republic. Nobody from the Communist Party USA has the right to tell me that, they, that I'm racist because I wave an American flag. I'm pro-imperialist because I wave an American flag. I'm social chauvinist. Until I see a statement on the Communist Party USA's website recognizing Donetsk and Lugansk, they have no right to say that to me. Until I see a statement on the PSL website recognizing Donetsk and Lugansk, they have no right to say that to me. Aesthetics. They make it all about aesthetics. Oh, the American flag is a flag of imperialism. Yeah, well, the United States, you know, fomenting anti-Russian hysteria and funding neo-Nazis in Ukraine is an act of imperialism. The shelling of Donetsk and Lugansk with U.S.-made weapons, that's imperialism. And we're against it. And most of these, these idiots who call us social chauvinists aren't. They aren't against it. Right? They aren't against it. They aren't against it. So, I mean, this idea that because we wave an American flag, we're not anti-imperialist. When we are the most anti-imperialist, we stand with 
all anti-imperialists, black nationalists, right? I'm quoted in the Nation of Islam's newspaper. They have reprinted pictures of my tweets in the Nation of Islam's newspaper. The leading black nationalist organization in the United States has published images of my tweets in their paper. They have quoted me in articles many times. I mean, we are the real anti-imperialists. And we understand that if we're going to convince the American working class to dismantle imperialism, we have to get them to understand. We have to get them to understand that it's in their interest and that America will be better and stronger and more prosperous if U.S. imperialism is dismantled. That's what we have to do. Excuse me. Excuse me there. But that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. All right. Were Enver Hoxha and Nikolai Ceausescu, were they socialists? Yes, they led socialist economies. Um, Albania was a socialist country until 1993. Now it's a capitalist country. Romania was a uh, socialist country until, what, 89, 90? And then now it's a capitalist country. Both of them were socialist uh, from World War II until the fall of the government, right? Albania was notorious for its independence. Albania broke relations with the USSR and aligned with China during the Sino-Soviet split. And then in 1978, they cut ties with China and they maintained they were the only truly socialist country in the world. And Enver Hoxhaism, Enver Hoxhaism is a little bit strange. It's a weird variant of communism, I'll tell you that much. But uh, yeah, it was a socialist country. And, but they fell into the trap. Albania fell into the trap of trying to build egalitarian, an egalitarian society in poverty. Albania is still a very poor country. And in Albania, in socialist Albania in the 80s, even though they'd lost, they, you know, in, in, in the 80s, you know, the Soviet Union was getting closer to the United States in the 60s. Albania cut ties with the Soviet Union and they, they aligned with China when China was cut off from the rest of the world. And then they had a falling out with China in 78. So in about 1980, Albania, 1980 till like the overthrow of socialism in 1993, Albania was completely isolated from the world. I mean, it was awful. I mean, you know, Fidel Castro was critical of the Soviet Union. He was critical of China, but he found a way to like not just cut them off. Right. And that Albania was completely isolated from the world. It was already a very poor country. And, you know, economically, the final years of Albania were very miserable. But the leaders of Albania basically fell into this trap of, oh, we can still have pure communism in poverty. Same thing the Gang of Four did in China. We can still have pure communism in poverty. And so in Albania, they only had three wages. You know, they had wage number one, wage number two, and wage number three, right? That was how egalitarian they are. Well, that's great, but you're still dirt poor. And you cannot build an egalitarian society in poverty. You can't do it. And Albania tried. And Mao and the Gang of Four, they tried. And Che Guevara tried in Cuba. You cannot build an egalitarian society in poverty. As long as you have poverty and scarcity, you're going to have social hierarchies and you're going to have inequality. The basis for dismantling social hierarchies, dismantling inequality is mass abundance. And socialism can create mass abundance. And that's the point that Frederick Engels makes in Socialism Utopian and Scientific. And that's the point that Karl Marx makes in. Um, in uh, the the critique of the Goetha program, that ma- this is material, right? It, it's material, uh, and that that yes, that that 
the cure for inequality, the cure for social hierarchies, the cure for the state is abundance. And Albania tried to build an ultra egalitarian society in poverty, and it was a disaster. And it's always a disaster when you do that. You cannot build an ultra egalitarian society in poverty. You can't do it, right? You're going to have bureaucracy in a socialist country. You're going to have inequality in a socialist country. The, the thing is that socialism overcomes the artificial restraints, as Frederick Engel put it, the artificial restraints on production and the artificial restraints on human creativity imposed by the market. There you go. All right. Why do they keep bringing up Chernobyl? Because they made that stupid documentary. You go to my friend Don Quarter, who has Revolution Report. Great guy. He's actually on the border with Ukraine right now reporting. He's doing great work. My friend Don Quarter ripped to shreds that awful BBC movie. It wasn't a documentary. It was like a fictional movie about Chernobyl. But Chernobyl has become a talking point of anti-Soviet propaganda. It's also a talking point of anti-nuclear propaganda. So it has propaganda value for it. Chernobyl because of the, the disaster, et cetera. It has propaganda value, and that's why they're bringing it up. Oh, you can bet. That's a good question uh, that you raised, um, you know, uh, and, and yes, that's why they're doing it. Um, that's why they're doing it. So there you go. There you go. Um, why is the petrodollar a big deal? Well, it's a big deal. So this is what you have to remember. Currency. The value of any currency is how many people use it. If a lot of countries are using the U.S. dollar, the value of the U.S. dollar goes up. If a lot of countries are not using it, it goes down. And that's the first rule of currency. More countries that use a currency, the more a currency is being used, the more value it has, right? That's why Bitcoin, the more people that sign up for Bitcoin, the higher, the more valuable Bitcoin is. Less people that have Bitcoin, the less valuable it is, right? Right now, Bitcoin is dropping. Um, but, you know, if more people use the US dollar, the dollar becomes very valuable. If less people use the U.S. dollar, the U.S. dollar becomes less valuable. That's how it works. So the petrodollar, which was established after the Second World War, they had this conference called Bretton Woods, and it was when they re redesigned the financial system after World War II. They built the IMF and the World Bank, World Trade Organization, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, the GATT. And one thing they set up at the Bretton Woods economic system is they set up the petrodollar which is that oil, which is the most valuable commodity in our global economy still, right? We haven't gotten beyond oil. Oil must be traded in dollars. And because of that, because the most valuable commodity in the global economy, oil, must be traded in dollars, that has made the dollar very, very valuable because the most valuable commodity in the world must be traded in it. So there's always going to be a lot of people that have dollars because of the petrodollar. Now, the petrodollar has been broken. Iran has sold oil to India in rupees in the Indian currency. And, you know, China and Iran have done some business and the petrodollar isn't, isn't what it once was. It used to be after the fall of the Soviet Union. So when the petrodollar was created, you either traded with the Soviet Union and got oil from the Soviet Union, or you got oil in the petrodollar. All oil that wasn't in the communist bloc was told was in the petrodollar. Then the Soviet Union fell and then the petrodollar was universal. Then every country in the world had to buy oil in dollars. And that's why North Korea had mass starvation because they couldn't, they couldn't get any gasoline for their tractors and people starved to death. And that's why in Cuba, you know, in Cuba, the electricity was going out. And that's why in Cuba, you know, like buses, you couldn't drive anywhere. I mean, it was like they were ride sharing and stuff because you had to buy oil in dollars. And if you didn't get any dollars, um, if you didn't get any dollars, uh, you know, then, then you couldn't drive anywhere. Um, you know, um, 
you know, and that's that. So, um, you know, uh, you know, that was the situation. Well, the petrodollar has, has started to be broken again. There's no new Comic-Con, right? The communist world, the anti-imperialist countries are not completely separate. China has all kinds of businesses there, et cetera. But that said, you know, there is, there is an emerging opposition to the petrodollar. All right. Believe me, we don't want authoritarianism in the U.S. We need a government of action, 100%, but we need to protect civil liberties. Absolutely. I'm for freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. I'm for, you know, freedom of religion. Uh, I'm for the rights of, of, of oppressed and marginal communities, LGBT rights, trans rights. Come on, man. You know, you know, I don't want to violate anyone's human rights. You know, I want civil liberties, but I also want a strong government that'll get shit done. All right. And last one. Uh, the leader of the alt-right movement, Richard Spencer, has been critiquing your pro-Russia takes on Twitter. Yeah, I noticed. Uh, Richard Spencer is a doofus. Okay. First of all, Richard Spencer, this is this is what I got to say about Richard Spencer, right? First of all, I mean, he's a disgusting racist, right? He advocates white supremacy. He is a white supremacist, right? I mean, that's what he is. He is, I'm not exaggerating. That's an epithet. Everyone's a Nazi now. Everyone's a white supremacist. No, this guy actually is a Nazi. This guy actually is a white supremacist. He organized the Charlottesville rallies. He's that. So he's disgusting, number one. Um, you know, he's like, you know, he's like our generation's David Duke. I think he's like maybe five, 10 years older than I am. And he's like our generation's David Duke. He's a white supremacist. I have no intention of debating him because I've watched his debates and I know how they go. I will debate other white supremacists, but I don't want to debate him because I know what he cares about and what I care about are very different. And I, I mean, I would want to argue with, with like an anti-communist, but Spencer will pretend to agree with me and be like, if you're a real communist, you should support white separatism. That's how he op operates. And I don't want to engage that conversation. Um, but the thing about Spencer that just tells you everything about Spencer, right? I mean, in addition to him being, being awful, right? The way he talks, right? He has a normal voice right, on his podcast, but when he's giving a speech, he talks like this. Yes, I am fighting for the white race. Yes, I think the Holocaust didn't happen. Yes, I'm Richard Spencer. I'm trying to scare you. I was a goth in high school. Like, the guy wants to be a fucking Hollywood villain. I mean, it's a joke. You cannot take him seriously. Look at any speech by Richard Spencer. He's like, yes, I talk like this. Yes, I'm fighting for white people. No, it's not the Hitler salute. I'm just, you know, putting my hand out straight. What? I, how do how could I know the Holocaust? It's the he is unbelievable, right? I mean, it's like it is the most pathetic, you know, edge lord. I'm trying to be everyone's scary nightmare white supremacist. It's like ridiculous, right? He's from an ultra rich, wealthy family. He's some rich kid who, you know, this is his hobby. This is his thing he wants to do. Is he wants to be like a famous neo Nazi? Uh, and he does it right. Um, and he had a wife who was, you know, from, uh, you know, from what Eastern Europe or Central Asia or something like that. And they divorced and he's mad about that. And he, after Charlottesville, they sued his pants off and he has no money anymore. And he's basically destitute and he's stripped down to nothing. And he's trying to rebuild his Twitter. And he knows that a lot of people in the alt-right community, unfortunately, because, you know, and this has always been a factor. There's always been a factor, right, is that unfortunately, among like straight up Nazis, not racist, not white, like straight up Hitler people, 
there's always been this weird current of people that like it's and it's a minority. It's not the majority by any means. But there's always been a minority of people like, you know, William Luther Pierce and Francis Parker Yockey. Uh, there's always been this weird layer of Nazis uh, who who because they are so against the world and because they are so in love with Hitler that they start to take anti-imperialist positions. It's very rare, but it happens. You get Nazis who praise China. You get Nazis who praise North Korea. And you, there's a there's a weird layer of Nazis who like anti-imperialist countries. Most of them don't. You listen to George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the founder of American Nazism. All of his speeches are kill the commies, kill the reds, race mixing is communism, communism is Jewish, blah, blah, blah. There's this weird layer of like people that are so, you know, deranged, Francis Parker Yockey, William Luther Pierce, that they are Nazis who take, they like anti-imperialist states because whatever, right? And Richard Spencer, at this point, I mean, he's financially destitute. They sued his pants off. They sued his pants off. He has no money left. They took his Facebook and his Twitter down. Now they gave it back to him. So he's trying to rebuild it. And he knows that among white supremacists, there is this current of like people who, you know, support, you know, Cuba and Venezuela, North Korea and China and Russia. So he's trying to get points with the establishment by being like, well, I'm a neo-Nazi and I'm a white supremacist, but I hate, I hate socialist countries, right? I'm a pro-imperialist, you know, I'm a pro-imperialist neo-Nazi, right? And he's, that's what he's doing. He's trying to rebuild his image, right? He's trying to, you know, and he just he had a divorce with his wife who was like a Russian citizen or something. He's mad at her. He's mad at Russia for like personal reasons, right? She accused him of domestic violence. Apparently he beat her up a couple of times and, you know, and, you know, he beat her up and told her that women need to be beaten or something and he beat up his wife and she divorced him and she's talked smack against him in the media. And so there's some personal stuff going on there. I'm not a psychologist, but whatever. But on top of that, He's trying to get back in mainstream media. And so in order to try and get back in mainstream media, he's trying to like gain some points with the establishment by being a pro-imperialist neo-Nazi. That's what he's doing. So he's come at me a few times. I'm not going to engage him. I'm not. I mean, I, I will snark and, and show people that we're not on the same page. I will, I will you, know, you know, snark at him on Twitter, but I'm not going to debate him. Right. I mean, I might, you know, I might debate another white supremacist at some point. I'm not going to debate. Him. No, not Richard Spencer. I mean, I'm not going to debate him. You know, he's not worth not worth my time. Um, you know, he's really not worth my time. Uh, and, you know, he's he's a has been, uh, you know, he's just he's forgotten. And now uh, now he's pro imperialist. So in addition to all the other awful things about him being a white supremacist, being an anti-Semite, being, you know, awful and despicable, being responsible for the death of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. Uh, you know, I mean, there's about a million things he's said over the years that are bad, fomenting hate, you know, you know, you know, inspiring. A lot of these mass shooters are people who got into his stuff on the internet, you know, and then they went out and shot up their school and killed a bunch of their classmates. And he's a reprehensible person. Okay. But in addition to all of that, he's now a pro-imperialist, reprehensible person. So the idea that I would debate him or engage him, no, not going to do it. Not going to do it. But I'll tell you, the synthetic left are also reprehensible. And you'll notice I have disagreed with him and I have made fun of him and I have, and they still, they, they take that and they say that that means I support it. Seriously, 
right? I mean, I'm on here disagreeing. He's attacking me and calling me a pro-Russian show, right? He's disagreeing with me, but somehow the fact that he tweets at me and disagrees with me is being used as proof by the synthetic lab. They're claiming that that is proof that I'm secretly a Nazi. I mean, that's how unbelievably dishonest and despicable these people are. Um, you know, gas prices are going to go up. Of course, the sanctions are going to drive the price of gas up. That's pretty obvious. Um, what do I think of secular talk? I did a whole video on secular talk and refuting Kyle Kalinske. And again, he's trying to take the middle of the road position and I don't respect that. Right. Um, but that's, that's my position there. Um, so I'm not going to debate Richard Spencer. I don't like Richard Spencer. I vehemently disagree with him. Um, and I've made that abundantly clear, but the synthetic left is going to keep on lying, number one, and he's going to keep on being pathetic and trying to rebuild his career now that, you know, back in 2016, when Trump got elected, he was everywhere, right? They were all, I mean, he was on TV every day and he was supposed to be the reason Trump was going to put us all in gas chambers and, and all of this. And, uh, and then uh, now, now Trump lost and the Trump people don't like him because he's bad PR. And the synthetic left doesn't need him as a, as a boogeyman anymore. That's basically what he was. He was a scarecrow for the synthetic left. They dragged him out on NBC and CNN and all these places. They dragged him around to, to scare everybody about Trump. You know, uh, now they don't need him anymore. And so he's kind of irrelevant and um, he's irrelevant. Um, so he can keep doing his thing. I, I got to tell you, one of his latest streams, I kid you not. He, and I listened to it for a few minutes, right? When he was tweeting at me, I thought, oh, what's he talking about? Okay, he was talking about how the Karate Kid movies, remember the Karate Kid movies from the 80s, these like kids kung fu action movies from the 80s? He was arguing that the Karate Kid movies were secret Jewish mating rituals from Bible times. That's what this man was streaming about. Now, we talk about weird stuff on here. You know, we talk about movies. I did my thing on Rocky Horror Picture Show. I, you know, I mean, I'm okay with that. Cop popular, but seriously, he was on there talking about how there's some secret ancient Jewish wedding ritual and that it's coded and that they're doing it in the Karate Kid movies. Seriously, like that's actually what he what he said on his stream. If you want to talk about somebody who is an idiot, that is like one of the stupidest things I have ever heard in my life. Anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools, right? You know, people that aren't smart enough to understand they're these people that are capitalists and they make profits and they exploit people and, you know, and they're trying to make surplus value and the capitalism is production for pro people that can't like comprehend that. People who are just like, my race doesn't have as much money as this other race. Well, I won't fight that other race. My, my, my race has more money. Yeah. And we're going to kill that other race. And we're going to take all their money. And, and, and then my race will have all the money. Yeah. Yeah. That's my ideology. I mean, seriously. It's, it's white, white nationalism, white supremacism, neo-Nazism, anti-Semitism is an ideology for fools. For utter fools. Okay. And the fact that he, he's, he thinks the Karate Kid movies have secret Jewish wedding ceremonies in them. That is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Why would I waste my time? I, I, we, we're just on here talking about the world economy. We're talking about Marxism. We're, and, and you want me to talk to this guy? I mean, what if he's on there and he says, well, Caleb, 
what do you think about the secret Jewish mating ceremony that takes place in the Karate Kid movies? I mean, he'll own me because I won't be able to say anything about it. I haven't watched the Karate Kid movies. I don't study ancient Jewish wedding ceremonies. I mean, I mean this is like, this is why he's not worth engaging. This man is an idiot. He is an idiot. He is an idiot. What is he? He is an idiot. And I am not an anti-Semite, okay? I'll just be real with you all. I've said this before. I made a mistake, all right? I wrote a book about, you know, when I was in Iran, the Iranians asked me to write a book, and I did, about, about Zionism and support for Israel and its connection with the financial crisis. You know, um, and I wrote it. And, you know, I made some mistakes in how I wrote that book. I'll just be real with you. I regret some of the language that was used on that, in that book. A number of my Jewish friends came to me and they said, Caleb, it's one thing to be anti-Israel, but some of the language in this book, some of the way you talked about Ayn Rand, the cover, stuff like that, this ain't okay. And I listened to them because I, look, I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for a lot of really awesome Jewish communists, you know, who, who taught me Marxism, who engaged with me, who patiently helped me develop politically. I am a student of Francis Dostal, who was Jewish. I am a student of Sam Marcy, who was Jewish, you know, as much as we had a falling out. I, I learned a lot from Fred Goldstein. I'll admit that, right? Um, you know, I mean, a lot of Jewish communists taught me Marxism. And after I published that book, um, I made some mistakes. You know, and a number of Jewish communists came to me and they said to me, Caleb, this isn't cool, right? You know, our people have been persecuted over the years and Israel's not cool either. We're not supporting Israel. Everything you said in this book about Israel is right on. Everything you said about, you know, the, the same corporations that are tied to Israel, being tied to the financial crisis is right on. But some of the terms you use, I'm not going to get into specifics. Some of the stuff you did in that book wasn't cool, you know? And I respected that. And I feel bad that I put that book out. I kind of wasn't thinking. And there were some personal circumstances in my life that I won't get into that caused me to make a very bad decision. And I apologize. And if you're Jewish and you're watching this, I apologize. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Uh, I shouldn't have done that. And, you know, I took the book off the market. I took the book off the market. And here's the frustrating thing. It's like, I, I admit I made a mistake. I should never have published that book the way I did. Okay? Never should have done that. Um, but, like, it's like these people, like, if they want to get me, right, this is what they can get me for. I legit made a mistake. This is the one thing these people say that is true, is that I wrote a book I shouldn't have written. They got me. I did that, and I'm wrong, and I apologize. That said, they then take what's true is that I did something very insensitive. I put a book, I put out a book on Israel and the financial crisis that was very insensitive. They take that and then they make up all kinds of shit that isn't true. Right? Like, for example, that book has chapters about Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and police brutality. And I talk about how the police of St. Louis were trained in Israel and all this. But they, they read this book and they, they claim, one of these people who will not be named, claims on his stream that I say in that book, Black Lives Matter is a Jewish conspiracy. I do not say that. That book is pro-Black Lives Matter. And that book is pro-immigrant. There are pages in that book about immigrant rights and the attacks on the immigrant community. And then they have this, this is the worst part. At the end of the book, I call for the people of the world to unite against imperialism. Right, I saw the people of America of different backgrounds coming together to unite against imperialism. Right, and 
they have taken that, that paragraph where I call for the people of the United States of different races, different backgrounds to unite against imperialism. And they claim that somehow that is the 14 words of George Lincoln Rockwell, the neo-Nazi phrase. Seriously. Okay, the 14 words, which I will not repeat on here. The point of those words is white separatism. The entire point of the paragraph there is I'm calling for people of different races, different backgrounds to come together, people of the world to come together against imperialism. It is the opposite of the 14 words. It has nothing in common with the 14 words. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. So these people, they're taking, they, and then that's the thing is, all you have to do is look at that paragraph. And that debunks the whole, the whole thing. They have like some four-hour stream where they're talking about this. That debunks the whole thing. That debunks the whole thing. And the thing is, they might have something. They might have a legitimate point. I made some mistakes. But instead of, instead of just getting me on what they've actually got me for, they have to lie. And because they lied, that debunks it. Look at the paragraph that they selected. And it's very clearly a statement of anti-imperialist unity. And look at George Lincoln Rockwell's 14 words. And it's like, it just discredits everything they ever did. It just discredits the whole thing. It's like there's a really big difference between people of different races coming together to fight against imperialism and whites should be separate. There's a complete separation between those two concepts. Complete difference, right? And these people, they shot themselves in the foot. Right? If they had just done a video saying Caleb made some mistakes, they would be telling the truth. But these people are so evil. Their own evil sunk them. And after they made that video, I had a bunch of people tweeting at me screenshots of, it was great, Peter Coffin. They tweeted Peter Coffin, a screenshot of my words, calling for people of different races to unite against imperialism, the whole world to unite together, come together, and the 14 words. And it was, it was amazing. It was, it was really, really amazing. Really amazing because all Peter Coffin, who is Jewish, of Jewish heritage, all he had to do is reply, are you kidding me? And the person took it down. I mean, it was so ridiculous. So utterly ridiculous. These people are so ridiculous, right? I mean, and it's like, yeah, these people, like they would do a better job. They really want to harm me. They would do a better job if they were like honest about it, but they are just so hungry to harm me. If anyone ever comes at me with that book, all I have to do is point to, oh yeah, you think that's the 14 words? Bump, debunked, right? Right there, right there, got them, right? And that's the sad thing. They gave me a huge gift and that shows that these people are not honest actors. They're sadistic. They want to harm me because I know more about Marxism than they do. Look, the individual in question, who we often call Skippy the Bear, he goes by Thought Slime right? This guy is so illiterate about Marxism that he thinks democratic centralism is an economic model, right? In his video, he's like, you know, Marx never wanted a centrally planned economy. Lenin invented that and he called it democratic centralism, all right? This guy doesn't know Lenin from a pipe organ. That's not what democratic centralism is. I mean, all he had to do is Google democratic centralism. He realized that was the way they organized the Bolshevik party to take power. It has nothing to do with that. It is not an economic model at all. He's an idiot, right? He's a complete idiot. And anyone who knows anything about Marxism or, or Marxist theory or democratic centralism knows this guy's a doofus. He doesn't know anything. And so he sees me on here 
right? And I'm actually a Marxist and I'm actually an anti-imperialist and I actually believe in this stuff. And he's scared because who is he? You know, I mean, his mother's like some kind of criminal. His mother's like a white collar criminal, an ex-con. And he's like, he's like, he's basically the joker, right? He's a failed comedian. He was trying to be a successful comedian and he couldn't do it. So he just started a YouTube channel, right? And he's got this whole, he's, he's really, the guy has suffered. He's had a hard life. You know, he's, he's had a lot of mental health problems and I, I don't blame people for that. People are allowed to suffer. And so he hates the world and he's made this YouTube channel all about his depressed, lonely feelings. And, and he's just a miserable person. And I feel sorry for him on that level, but he doesn't understand Marxism, right? But he's got a lot of money coming in on Patreon. And I mean, who knows where that money is coming from, but it just so happens that I'm, I almost am sure, I mean, we don't have the smoking gun, but I'm pretty sure some of his patrons are saying to him, you really ought to go after that Caleb. I mean, people that work for RT, people that are anti-imperialist, they're the worst, you know, and he's just, you know, he's just uh, basically, he's being incentivized by Patreons, by the people who rig the algorithms in Silicon Valley to go after, right? And the thing is, he could do a better job if he was honest about it, but he's just such a sadistic, hateful person. Um, And his mental illness that he, you know, talks about all the time and his, his own trauma and his own pain and whatever has driven him to just go into this frenzy against me. Um, and he just won't stop. I mean, it's like every, every, I mean, it'll be, I'll think it'll be over. And the next month I'll see, Oh, he's going after me again. You know? And it's like this guy, I mean, it's like, and look, look how many YouTube followers do I have compared to this guy? Like, I mean, am I going to take his crown away from him? I mean, are more people going to listen to me? No. But he knows at the end of the day that he doesn't deserve his position. It's basically, they call it, um, what's the name for it? It's called imposter syndrome. What is that called? Is it like imposter syndrome or is that what that's called? Imposter syndrome or, or uh, there's a name for it. Um, it's not imposter syndrome. It's like imposter complex, something like that, right? He knows he shouldn't be on the internet talking to people about Marxism. He shouldn't. Be. He doesn't know what he's talking about, right? He doesn't know what he's talking about. And he knows he shouldn't be on the internet talking about something he doesn't know shit about. He shouldn't be on there. And he knows that I should be the pe- the one people are listening to about Marxism. But that, you know, he's aware that he is not worthy of the position he has. The only reason he's on the internet talking to people about Marxism is because he's pro-imperialist, right? Because he hates Venezuela. He hates Cuba. He hates China. He, he hates the former Soviet Union. He doesn't know shit. And he's easily manipulated by the imperialists. Um, that's why he's there and he's a doofus and he doesn't understand it. And he thinks democratic centralism is, uh, is, is an economic form, right? You know, um, that's what he thinks. Um, and so because of that, uh, you know, he, he, he's very defensive and he thinks that me with my like 20,000 YouTube followers, am going to dethrone him. I ain't going to dethrone him. You know, Silicon Valley isn't rigging things for me right? We're never going to be able to out YouTube the imperialists. We're never going to be able to out YouTube the imperialists. We can try, but we're not going to be able to. We're never going to be able to out, you know, TV and and newspaper the imperialists. They're always going to be able to do better whiz bang than we are, right? What we've got going for us is organization, building organizations that care for people. The Communist Party USA never had more like rich funders than the Socialist Party, never had more like financial backing, uh, you know, than the, than the, you know, social democratic groups, what they had going for them is they fed people. They built unemployment councils. They built militant labor unions that fought on people's behalf. That's, 
That's what they have. And that is what we've got, right? We are building the Center for Political Innovation. We are going to build a community that anti-imperialists can be part of. We are going to build a community for working people, communities of solidarity. We're going to build a real organization. And that is how we will ascend. We are going to build a real community. That's the only hope we have. That's the only way communists have ever gained any strength in this country. Right? They've never been able The fake socialists always have better and more widely distributed books. They always have, you know, you know, more attention to them in the media because the media and the publishing houses and the algorithms are controlled by the imperialists. Right. But when working people are hungry, when working people are struggling, when they want things like health care and jobs and education, that's something we can offer that shills of the system can never offer. That's what we can offer. And that's why this conference coming up, March 12th in Austin is so important. And that's why joining the Center for Political Innovation is so important. That's what we can offer. That's what we can offer. That's the only hope we have for defeating these people. We will build an organization of real people who want to change the world. So there you go. There you go. And that's my thoughts on this, folks. It is almost, it's, it's been almost three hours we've been on here. Um, so I'm going to wrap it up now, um, because I'm going to run out of voice pretty soon. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world, especially today. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists, people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists, the people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. We need a government of action to fight for working families. We need a government of action to fight for working families. We need a government of action to fight for working families. Good night.